and welcome to a brand new life, to a brand new day, all the way from the wastelands of California. My name is Michael, and I'm a mere figment of your imagination. I look forward to once again serve you those sounds of salvation. First-time listeners, turn on, tune in, and drop out. This is a very different kind of show, a place where we don't feel so alone. Let us chase away the light no matter what you at home choose to believe. I do admire you for your curiosity. My guest this evening is Bernie Taylor. He is an independent naturalist, thought leader, and author whose research explores the mythological connections and biological knowledge among prehistoric, indigenous, and ancient peoples. He is also the author of the books Biological Time and Before Orion, Finding the Face of the Hero. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for allowing me into your hearts and into your minds. Here we are again on a night like this. Good evening to you out there, wherever you are. Feels right under pale moonlight. We have yet another full house. And on the second half, Michael Baker joins us. The sedated man. No doubt you should stick around. I think you'll like what I've got in store for you. And also, please do remember, you too can get involved. Your phone calls are always welcome. Don't hesitate to call in. That number is 760-332-8724. Don't be afraid to state your name. When you first dial in, that number is 760-332-8724. Now let's get down to brass tacks and bring in our first soul. Michael, are you alive? Is that you, Michael? Oh, Bernie, I'm, I'm Bernie. sorry. I wasn't call, I wasn't calling you, Michael. There's also another Michael here. I apologize. Uh, Bernie, are, are you alive and well? I'm doing good. Yes. How's it going, my friend? Welcome aboard. Well, Life is good. I'm here in sunny Oregon. It's a little on the cold side, but it's we've got sun, and the the weather seems to pass. And we were talking earlier that I spent the day in court, um, and that it was a uh, I was not exactly acquitted, but I wasn't charged either. And my daughter was doing mock trials, kids battling it against each other using the rules of the law, and both each, each side twisting the truth to to win the competition and. Fortunately, my daughter's going to go on to be a scientist and not a lawyer because, boy, that's a nasty world. It really is. That's where they teach you how to lie and style. Yeah, lie, cheat, and steal. And um, it's, uh, you know, it's it's all supposed to be in play, but they, hopefully what a lot of these kids walk out of this and say, you know, if, if you have ever have a problem, get a good lawyer. But um, in life itself, you choose the path that you lead. And do you want to lead the path of, you know, of the manipulation um, is the question to be had. And I hope a lot of those kids walked away and say, you know, um, this was all fun, but I want to do something. I want to be better in life. In Japan, they actually don't have many lawyers. It's considered a disgrace if you go to a lawyer. Really? Um, it's more, you know, they, but they have a lot of arbitrators, people who do like intermediaries. And the concept is if you go to court, you've already lost. If, you know, you've, you haven't been able to resolve the situation. Whereas in our country, people look for lawsuits as a, for, just to get attention. And of course, um, we know number one guy who's looking for attention through lawsuits, right? His whole life. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. What he's, he's called number, he's, um, um, person number one. <laughs> That's true. And Bernie, you never admit to a lie or else you'll be a liar. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Definitely let your daughter know that one. Exactly. Life is great here in Oregon. We have a great, we have an incredible show ahead of us. Um, we're going to talk about the big stuff, the the, the oh, questions yes. of eternity. 
And we're going to dive into some stuff today that, you know, ask me the questions you've always been afraid to ask. Because today we're going to open up the teacher's edition book to humanity. We sure are. Yeah. And I'm, I'm 34,000 so, years ago. No doubt. And I'm so glad you reached out to me, Bernie. I had no idea who you were until you sent me the email. I did my homework and I was blown away. Well, I came out of nowhere. I mean, I really came out of nowhere in the, in this alternative world in the podcast. Uh, my book before Ryan Fine Face the Hero was released in ebook version a year ago last October. Um, and I didn't really put out stuff until just last, a year ago last January. I'm, you know, going a bigger way. And since then I've reached more than three million people on long form podcasts. And we, and you know, Joe Rogan's 10 million people, all that sort of stuff. And Sam Harris, maybe a million or two. It's a lot of people. But if we think about this concept going back in 15 years ago, this couldn't have existed. 15 years ago, you had to go through Newsweek or Time or Smithsonian or Discovery Magazine or something to even get out there. But now we have this democratization through the social media, whether it be um, podcasts or YouTube, Twitter, Instagram and so forth, that people, if they've got a good message, they've got a good story to tell, you can put it out there, millions of people, and let them decide. It's a complete disruption in the, the power base of information. Um, and, you know, Time and Newsweek now are really, they're irrelevant. Um, it's, you know, what, what do you get over the, what do you get over the internet? But you have, but everybody has a lot of information to, to weed through. Um, and I've, um, I hope that I'm putting out good information that people can take away and, you know, walk in their, their normal lives. Yes. And something you said right now resonated with me. And I'm sure you get plenty of email yourself. And some of it actually caused me to have a profound introspective experience. I had not truly really contemplated the even this role I play simply by just doing the show. I had forgotten that not just me, but all of us play some sort of significant role to someone in this strange, wonderful experience we call life. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you yourself have found individuals like that who gravitate towards your work. Well, I hope so, but you know, there's got to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, and that's a good thing because I've taken my hero's journey. At the end of the hero's journey, one returns back to tell the story. Right. Was it the story of the the first book of the Hobbit was there and back again? Um, and so I've gone there and I've come back again. And the essence is to share my story, to share what I've learned, and that is what the hero does in all the great myths. And in every great, in all these great myths, they return back with a story powerful enough to set society free. But society is never free from the stories we tell. Um, and we, but we, re, we retell these, these same myths and these same stories. And, uh, they resonate with people, but deep in the unconscious. Um, so you can't just walk, we're going to talk about a lot of incredible subjects today. Things that are unimaginable two years ago. And people, some of it's going to be in your head. You're going to walk away with songs you'll be singing. Some of it's going to be the next time you open a book or watch a movie, you're going to walk away with, you know, oh, my God, that's what it means. And that's the essence of what we're going to do today is we're going to deep into the deep, delve deep into the collective unconscious um, and draw back the archetypal images that's, that are shared yeah, among Bernie, us all. Bernie, that that's actually what I was experiencing right now. Right when I was opening up the show, I, I was hearing multiple voices because I, I forgot to mute different lines on this mixer here. So, again, I, I apologize for that. You didn't hear anyone say anything, did you? No. Okay, perfect. How many voices, Michael, how many voices did you hear? 
I heard one. <laughs> it's a joke. It's a joke. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I, I heard one or two, and it, and it crossed into the mixer here, and okay. it completely freaked me out. But I apologize if anyone I did hear another voice. I don't want you to think you're going crazy. <laughs> yes, just had to warn people there. And, of course, I am genuinely interested in what people are into and what motivates them. And I'm interested in your background before we jump into all these subjects. And I'm interested to see how you got into this field. Sure. How did I, how did I fall into this? Right. Well, for my whole life I've been, I've been a naturalist. So when I was a kid, I collected bugs or in, insects. So the, so the amateur entomologist. And I grew, I grew up fishing and spending time in the woods and I, um, in the woods as well. And I came out, grew up on the East Coast, um, New York metro area, came out to Oregon in my mid-20s, I'm 54 now, and I became more immersed in the outdoor world. And I wrote a previous book, it was titled Biological Time. And Biological Time sought to answer a very simple question out here in Oregon. We have salmon and we have steelhead. And every year the salmon steer, steelhead run early, later, um, from one year to the next. And people, people, scientists, everybody, you know, it's the weather, it's the water flow, it's whatever the story is. Or maybe someone that's just following one smart salmon. Well, we have multiple species of salmon. When one is, when one species is late, the rest of them are late. And so it, it begged that question. And so I sought that answer and I resolved it in, in a fabulous way. And it's very simple. Um, salmon migrate in the darkness and they slow down during the day. Well, the darkness is not of the day, it's also the, of the night. So around the full moon, the salmon actually slow down. Makes sense. And so if you turn the light on your home at night, you're going to pop up. The, the light's going to wake you up. The darkness is just the opposite for the salmon. And so the salmon migrate during the dark nights and slow down during the light nights. Well, the, the, the light of the night is the light of the moon. And the moon has a cycle. And it's 29 and a half days. Um, if you divide 29 and a half into 365, you're 11 days short. You're 11 days short. And you're, that means that the full moon, let's say, let's say the dark moon, let's say the new moon, hypothetically. The new moon was the big migration moon. And around, right around there. That would be January 12th one year, hypothetically, and January 1st the next year. So the reason the salmon were early later from one year to the next was because the, the moon, they're tied to lunar and solar cycles later to their endocrinology or, or more, um, commonly called chronobiology, biological clocks. And so that's why the earlier later, they share two clocks that are not in sync with each other. And when I did that work, I also recognized I'd seen um, other work that showed that um, migratory birds and invertebrates and so forth, had they always found these singular rhythm, rhythms for these animals. So they laid eggs running around a full moon or dropped their young or, or they migrated up and down or um, deal with vertical migration. And there was all these singular events. And I said, well, they can't be just singular events because a salmon, the salmon mi- the migration ultimately determines when they spawn. And so I actually get, ter- I actually timed the spawning of the salmon to the moon. Ah, and, yes. um, I, f- I tracked them out, out to the ocean as juveniles and back and forth and so f- back and forth. And so it was a cross for all these, all these animals that respond to light dark si- signals. It was almost across the biological spectrum. And people now use this concept or scientists use it in protocols, uh, for fish and wildlife biology and other uh, people who monitor animals in the wild. And that was done about 13 years ago. And I get presentations that, you know, fishery to, you know, um, let's say fish, fish and fish, fish science, um, fishery science academic groups, um, state and federal agencies, the, the tribes, huge in the Pacific Northwest. And that was 
profoundly influential. And that led me in this direction of where we're going to go tonight. Oh, yes. And it led me back to the caves of Europe. Because someone said to me, they said, you know, if, if native, if native Americans have this knowledge in their calendars of this, what they actually had the calendars of the salmon timing early, later, for their next, maybe Paleolithic man had it and maybe it's in the caves of Europe. And so I looked at the cave, the images in the cave at Lascaux in France from 17,000 years ago. And there's nomenclature, there's, there's grid patterns and there's dots next to sequences next to each animal. And they actually next to each type of animal, the sequences are the same. And that's really important. And it turns out that one can actually look at that sequence, the same numerical concept, and tie it to the Native American calendars, which was exactly the same as the, the animals. Because the animals haven't changed in 17,000 years. And our Native Americans, their, their knowledge of, of animal behavior is, um, was on par, if not better, with the Paleolithic cave artists. And so Native Americans had it. They've had it in their culture, and they exercise it through their ceremonies and their fishing, hunting, and practices, but they didn't externalize it to, let's say, the scientific world. And so how did I get into this was I was an outdoor person, um, naturalist, started working on the salmon, expanded the concept to, uh, to other animals, and then um, took this sort of academic road, road of presentations. And this was 13, 14 years ago. We didn't have podcasts as we have today. And right. YouTube was just breaking out. And so if I wanted to speak to a group, I need to get in the car, you know, and haul it across the state. Um, and so that's how I kind of like fell into this place. But we're going to talk about tonight something deeper in time than 17,000 years ago. We're going to go back 34,000 years ago. And we're not just going to talk about the timing of the animals in this cave art. We're going to find about the essence of who we are as people, which is completely profound. It really is. It truly is. And, of course, you were talking about these uh, cave paintings, the, if I recall, the El Castillo cave, right? Yes. Yeah, so the, so the, I, in, before Ryan, I covered a, a few different caves. And the one I do in the podcast and I have most of the YouTube videos about is the El Castillo cave in the Cantabria region of, of Spain. So we're talking um, north, north, um, western. Um, the nearest big city that we people would know, a big airport would be Bilbao. And the El Castillo cave about seven years ago was documented or um, with the oldest cave art in the world. And it was a red disc about the size of the palm of your hand. And what had happened was there's, there's a, it's a, there are limestone walls and um, calcium carbonate secretes out of the limestone, which becomes a dable substance. When it goes over a, a human made, made image, it then becomes oh, a, um, Dade, well, the image, so the image is at least as old as the calcium carbonate. Did, did you hate your cat? Now, now, being as, at least as old could be one day <laughs> older, or it could be a million years older. Yes. That's an important concept. And so this, this, um, they had this red disc that was, um, shown to be you know, the oldest cave art in the world at that time, about 40,000 years old. And the media had a, had a, um, it was a big deal. I mean, we, cause it had just put the, pushed the dating of K-Bark are back at least 20,000 years that we could actually reliably date something. But it was, it was just a red disc. And, and, um, scientists, there was really no explanation for it. If you had some sparring ibex or a megaloceros or, you know, some animals with some action, they could have found meaning in it. But what is a red disc? 
And it wasn't a very clear red disc either on a panel that was an uneven surface. So they ran, the media ran with another panel in the cave system that had a disc that was dated to 34,000 years ago. And this is called the Gallery of Discs. And this is a beautiful image. You have 80 or so discs, about each, about average size of the palm of your hand, running across this 10 meter panel, so about 33 feet. And you're just drawn into these red discs. And that stream right down, sort of the horizon, the center horizon line, we'll call it. And, um, and I looked at that and I said, well, you know, I started counting the discs just like everybody else. We're drawn to these red discs in the same way we're drawn to red lipstick, red cars, you know, DQ, McDonald's right. and Burger King signs. The Coke, the, the, the label on Coca Cola, it's brainstem dominated. We're sucked in at the most basic primitive level. And I don't mean primitive like primitive man, but I mean like primitive lizard. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so we're, so everybody was drawn to those red discs and they missed the elephant in the room. And when you had the chance to look at those videos, did you see the elephant in the room? I did. I did get a chance to see it. How convinced of that there was an elephant, that was an elephant. Uh, pretty well. I was actually pretty convinced. Actually, I had a I had a go <laughs> There's look. There's four of them. There's four of them. <laughs> I had actually go look at a different source to get more of a high res photo. Okay. But it did work out. I, I did see that. In fact, it's fascinating because the elephant has a. There's actually there's four elephants, and two of them have their. It uses the same ear and the same trunk. So the trunk is if you chart. The trunk is up, raised as if it's in distress in one image, and the elf and the ear is up. And if you, you flip it 90 degrees counterclockwise, the trunk is down as it's reading, as it's uh, drinking water, and the ear is back. So the artist was talking about multiple perspectives. The artist was telling us that you've got to look beyond the red disc. You have to see the forest or the trees, or in this case, you have to see the elephant in the savanna. Right. No it's a doubt. test. I mean, it's it's um. So how do I pass the test? At least begin to pass the test is the big question. So how could millions, I mean, we're talking millions of people had seen these images, this image, in the scientific and popular meter. And you can, you can Google on the internet now, Gallery of Discs, and you, other than my work and other people that talk about my work, you won't find any mention of the elephant and the many other characters. Well, I reasoned something. I mean, it was pure reason that 33, 33 meter, a 10-meter panel with all this white space and just the red disc in the center, I believe that the artist had a little more to say about that huge canvas. And can you imagine, you know, Picasso, for example, you know, doing a handprint on a 10-meter long canvas with the rest of it white? He wouldn't have done it. And so I started looking for the, the most common animal in Pelican Cave Art, and that is of a horse, and it's typically a pregnant mare. So I started looking for the mare. And within seconds, I saw the first elephant. And, you know, within a minute, I saw two characters, a man speaking to a, a, a older man speaking to a younger man. We'll call it the teacher and the apprentice. And then a few minutes later, I saw this, this lion. It was a lion with a mane, which is unique because all the other Paleothic cave images that we had found, um, they don't, they have lions, but not lions with mane. And it, so the, it, it, then the elephant, there were elephants in Europe at the time. There were straight tusked elephant, which, had a hump on the top of the head, and these elephants don't have that hump. So I, I went back to my early 20s. I reached out to someone from my distant past. His name was George Shallow. George Shallow was the mentor to everybody in wildlife biology, Jane Goodall, and so forth. And he is today considered the foremost wildlife biologist. And I met him when I was living in China. 
and it was through a mutual acquaintance on a Chamber of Commerce type of excursion. And George didn't remember me, but I remember him because he, he that a friend said to me, said to me, you know, he doesn't like to talk about his work. And, you know, yeah, he was in he was in National Geographic that month. He, he was a bunch of snow leopards, leopards climbing over him and he was in a Rolex ad. So George didn't remember me. I was just I was just a nobody kid right. um, working in China in the business world. So I contacted George and I said, hey. Um, can you help me to you know, decipher these images and where where these animals might be from? Well, that could go different ways because it's like contacting Tiger Woods and saying, "Hey, Tiger, can you check out my swing and see if I have potential in golf?" <laughs> right. You know, Tiger could look at your swing and say, "Hey, you know, you know, maybe shuffleboard is your game." <laughs> right. Or pinochle, poker, or something. Well, this could have gone the same way with George. And, you know, he looked at it and we went back and forth with a few emails. And then we, other images started popping out during this conversation. And an hour, a year and a half later, um, and hundreds of emails, we had fundamentally, um, deciphered probably, um, or actually identified maybe 40 or 30 or 40 animals in this panel and dozens in other panels and animals that had not previously been identified. And what was so unique, we came to, we actually, not only did we identify animals, but we identified animals that were indigenous at that time to Europe and to Africa. And we found people that look like, um, let's say, people from Europe today that are historically from Europe. Okay. In fact, all the characters in this panel, what would, one would think that they should look like people from Europe today, or indigenous. And so we have these people that have traveled back, people uh, that had traveled back and forth to Africa. They had seen these animals and they came back and they, and they, they etched them on the walls of the caves. And it, it's, it was a showstopper, complete showstopper. And because the, in, in archaeology and anthropology prior to my work, the idea was over 20, 10, 20,000 years, people slowly migrated around the Mediterranean. But in fact, people were swimming back and forth across the Strait of Gibraltar which today is about a three-hour swim if you're a strong swimmer. So it was a showstopper in um, in humanity's journey. But a bigger showstopper came out as I was finishing my work from other researchers, um, um, archaeologists, and paleoarchaeologists. And it involves a place called Jebel Erhut, and it's in Morocco. And it's a, it's a, it's a small hill they had, they had uh, started to dig out. Uh, maybe 20 years ago, and they, they found um, hu- remains that were human. They thought maybe some mix of Neanderthals that they later discounted that, dated to maybe 150,000 years ago. But as I was finishing my book, they dated Homo sapien remains to 300,000 years ago, which became the oldest Homo sapien remains in the world that we per- currently have. And so we've got this story of this man, of these people that are traveling back and forth between Europe and um, Western Western North Africa, Morocco, and this. So how distant how distant in time is this story? Well, it's more than thirty four thousand years ago, and it, it asks the question of where do people really come from? Do we come from we come from South Africa or do we come from Eastern Africa? Right, because that's where people have previously found older fossils. It it rewrites history in who we are as a people, and it's um you know it's 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 startling and the. the the gravity of the situation is enormous. And the bigger part, the most fascinating part of this is I didn't even make the original discovery of this cave art. That's the most fascinating part. People had been, been to these caves for thousands of years 
and they have recorded in the records, they recorded in their art, the Phoenicians, the Greeks, the, the Romans, the Egyptians, everybody had been there. And they, they, they wrote about, they actually, they actually took the astronomy, they took the artwork, they took the myths, and they told about it, and we have the stories still in our records. And that's the, the, the most startling thing of this whole journey that I've taken, is that we've invented nothing. Um, we're re, we're reinventing or refinding knowledge that was found in the distant past. Yeah, nothing new. No, nothing new under the sun, as they say. There's nothing new under the sun, and it's it's absolutely fascinating. And um, one of the one of the videos I have out there is about the Big Bang. It's a two minute video. My beforeRyan.com on YouTube spelled as one word. People can find it. Definitely, and definitely. It talks about. Uh-huh. Go ahead. The cosmic egg and the Big Bang. And it goes into this concept of collective unconscious. So it's, you, you've, you've had guests on your show and you've watched YouTube's about the cosmic egg and people around the world have this, this myth that people sprung forth from the egg or that the, co- or the constellations broke from the egg. Well, we find this, that exact image on this Pelothic cave panel. We have all these constellations as the Greeks identified them and they're all kind of like the animals are jumbled on top of each other. And they have this man holding the cosmic, and we have another man, human character, who's stealing the cosmic, and we have the great auk, which, which the now extinct great auk, held, uh, laid a huge egg, which in fact this cosmic man is holding. Well, in, in modern science, we, we recognize the Big Bang as a singularity. But we, in modern science, it didn't start that way. There were many ideas about the cosmos until Belgian priest Father Lemaitre, I believe it was the 1940s, um, the, Father Lemaitre mathematically came up with the, the hypothesis of a singularity in the cosmos that there was sort of a, a, it all came from one place. And he was ridiculed and people, you know, told me it was nonsense. And they, one of the ways they ridiculed, they said, it's just the Big Bang, the orgasmic moment, which is the word we use now in science. Pope Pius XII came out in favor of La Mantra, and he said, this, we can now, science has proven that there was a singularity, that there was a creation, therefore there must have been a creator. And all the astrophysicists, they all came out against La Mantra, and because they just said he was just pushing science. Einstein himself said, your, your mathematics is correct, but your physics is atrocious. And it wasn't until years later that Hubble um, recognized a, or observed an expa- expanding universe or, or a different movement of stars that appear to be expanding that Einstein changed his story and shortly after the, the astronomical community jumped on board with this. But Lemaitre had the idea from the cosmic egg. He was mathematically working out a formula of a what we would believe is an archaic myth. And so we how, did we really invent anything? I would have to say we probably did not. <laughs> no, we did it. Probably not. And it's, it gets really weird, especially when you talk about carbon dating and seeing how old things really are. It all goes back to what we, I guess we could call forbidden academics. Um, I'm interested to know if, if there's anything quote unquote forbidden. It seems like certain work doesn't get put out there depending on, um, I guess you could say political reasons. Actually, that's a really good question. I'm going to explain, express my experience. So my, so, uh, my previous work, Biological Time, um, it was solid research, statistically driven. 
And I was wider, I was widely received in um, scientific, academic, and tribal and government circles. And I went around. And I didn't blame anybody. I didn't say you didn't know this. You're an idiot. I didn't say that uh, you know you lied and you cheated. You're stealing. And you're hiding. You're hiding information. Right. I went in there and I said, let's share information. Um, and that was the way that I opened the doors and that we had actual discussions. And that was the way that. Uh, the fish and wildlife people actually took me out in the field and they shared more information with me. They asked me, how can we analyze this differently? And it was, it was a profound experience. And my experience with before Ryan is not that much different for, for so-called academic circles. My, the first presentation I gave, live presentation um, to, in front of a group of people, was at an, um, professional astronomers um, in Maui. So, you know, it was a vacation trip, but it was a, an astronomical institute. Okay, so these these are all people. This is what they do for a living. And we talked about the cosmic gag and the, the cave images and so forth. The second presentation I gave was at actually that was the second that was the second one. The first one I gave was at Oregon State to an, an anthropology department, and I spoke about the North African connection to um, Europe and the like, the cave art and the cos and the um, the animals and so forth. The third presentation I gave was at a, a progressive Presbyterian church where the, the minister is an atheist, and we talked. It was on Darwin Day, and I gave a presentation about um, my view of evolution. And I have one coming up next week at, in San Diego in Planetary and Sciences. So I've been on a lot of science podcasts. I've been on a lot of alternative, um, non-mainstream podcasts. And what I've learned is that if you go out there and you want to share what you've learned without saying you know, you're an idiot, you should have known this, and so <laughs> yes. forth. People will listen. But what I have found, I'm going to tell you right now, there are a few podcasts that will not have me on the show. It's not because they don't believe my information is valid, but it completely contradicts that camp of people that is out there pointing fingers. They're saying, you know, the archaeologists and the Egyptologists and the rest of them, they're hiding it from you. You know, they're, they won't tell you the truth, and they're lying to your kids, and for those podcasts that have that that storyline, they will not let me on because I'm telling a different I'm telling a different truth than they believe that they've been telling all along. Yeah. And so I've received, fascinating enough, I received popular support in academic circles, but and and I would say um, 80% of the the, the the alternative circles, but 20% of them they will not let me in. And um, I was I was invited to a uh, give a, co- a conference presentation this fall, and when the 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 moderator read my stuff, he uninvited me. <laughs> oh, that quickly, huh? <laughs> so so this is this is how I see it. It's that you know Toyota doesn't promote Honda's work. Right. Of course okay, not. Unless it's really you know in, in their interest. You know they they have some combined model. They're sharing a factory, and we're. In the world of archaeology, anthropology, and so forth, and biology, they're all, everybody's competing, you know, to move to the front of the line, to win the race. And I'm competing with them as well. But what I'm coming out and saying, hey, I've got some new information. And so what they're doing is they're buying, they're tapping into it, because now they have a new direction to go in their own, in their own publications and presentations and, and so on. And, um, I'm doing it in such a way that, um, they have so many different directions to go, and it's, a, it's an exciting time. This is this is 2019. In the summer of 2020, there's going to be a, a scientific conference, and it's going to bring together about 25 people in different spheres related to this to talk about this concept of the outward migration from Africa, West North Africa, going back 300,000 years ago, is at the source of it, 
um, into Europe and back again. And it's for the people, the academics are involved in this. It'll be an entirely paid conference, and it'll be one week, um, and we're, it'll be you know hashing out these issues because there's you can't shut this down because it's there. I put it out to millions of people on the internet, and they all see it. And they're saying, "What? Let's now figure out where we can go with this." Right. We, we're not trying to hide the truth. We're trying to find a greater truth. And the, the, the most unique part of this is that that greater truth. Go is in the myth of the ancients. Oh yes, it's throughout the myths of the Greeks, and um, through these cave images, we can find, you know, scores of not scores, at least dozens of Greek characters in the exact same stories. Yes, yeah. and and by the way, I would assume you definitely agree the wealth of evidence that these things aren't the way they are stated in textbooks. This evidence that gets completely shunned. Yes, and so text. Well, a few things about textbooks. Uh, number one for textbooks. Is that they are, they're all dated, okay? They're all dated 15, information dated 15, 20 years ago. Right. Number two is that textbooks are decided by committees, okay? So in the entire state of Oregon where I am, all the, te- the textbooks are decided by a committee. But the committee is not just the people of a group at Oregon, but there'll be a regional conference because they buy, they buy in volume, right? So if you're in the southern part of the United States, for example, you're in Alabama, Mississippi, and you're going to, Louisiana, there's going to be a different conference of book buyers than there's going to be up here in the Pacific Northwest. Okay? And so that sets the tone for what people learn in school. And so in their tone is based on what was, you know, you know, discovered, you know, or was assumed mainstream group think 15 years ago, because that's when the, the textbooks, you know, fundamentally compiled. The re- and so the, will this information end up in textbooks in the high schools? Um, it's gonna be a while, but it doesn't matter because the inf- oh I, I missed one. I gave a presentation to a high school as well um, about neurodiversity, um, the art of the art of being different, and um, it was scientific scientific after school kids came out to a science group. Um, that was another presentation I gave. But as as a concept, if you want to reach people, you don't do it through textbooks. You do it through the internet, and I can reach. I've reached more people in the last year than some primetime um, TV shows do, you know, in a week. Um, because the, the power of the podcasts and the Internet is profound to spread information. You do not need to go through the textbooks anymore. I, I haven't been in ancient, alien, ancient aliens. They're probably not going to let me on. But um, <laughs> Yes, they, let's get into that know, realm. They, they have millions, two to three million viewers per episode. It's insane, really, and I did want to get your take on all of that. I always say on this program that Ancient Aliens, going back to 2010, that's when the UFO community did get a shot in the arm and really did hype up the subject uh, tenfold. And now UFOs and extraterrestrials, one of the most popular things around now, and I give all the credit in the world to that program uh, specifically, and a very interesting show, however... There are things in it that, well, I think, I think, Bernie, you, you can uh, agree with me that they sort of exaggerate some of their claims. So this is what they do, and the Cosmic Gag is a good one, okay? Right. Here we go. They will, they will have a whole program about the Cosmic Gag, and people around the world have this, and the only way people around the world could have the same myth and have these, this, the same archetypal characters and the, and the artifacts is if, well, ancient, ancient alien theorists, theorists believe, blank, blank, blank. And, right. um, well, there's, there's 
other explanations. One explanation is we came from the same place, okay? And that the myths, the myths come from a singularity um, on this planet. And I believe that these myths go back to, well, we, we can show these, many of these myths, the cosmic egg and the cosmic mountain and, uh, you know, the hero, the hero's journey. They go back at least 34,000 years. And so people, everybody didn't come from, you know, Iberian Peninsula in West North Africa 34,000 years ago. But those people had migrated across the Sahara. And they migrated across into Egypt where they carried on the same myths. And people came through Egypt. It was a transit station like, like Grand Central in New York. And uh, so why do the Chinese have the fundamentally same cosmic egg myth as the people, this part of the cave, the Egyptians and the Dogon? Is because people, it had emanated from the same place. And it didn't require ancient aliens to do it. So what the ancient aliens people do is they actually great, they put out this great um, archaeological story and anthropology. And I mean, they show great images and they, you know, it's, it's absolutely beautiful done. And then w- without an answer from anybody, um, outside of their circle, except for one mythologist who does some pretty good stuff, they, um, they will then jump to the conclusion, it must have been aliens. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's one thing I don't like about it, but I do like the show. And we also have to give credit to Eric Von Daniken, who is also yeah. a, a prominent figure who did push all of that to the forefront. Speaking oh, of yeah, he's broke. So here's the deal with, yeah. um, Go ahead. so the question now becomes with my work coming out that there was a singular source of these myths and many of the, many of the myths that the ancient aliens has, the cosmic mountain, the cosmic egg, the man who flies. Um, so in the, in the, in the cave images, we find this man who transforms himself into a bird, an avianoid. Um, and we can see, not only we see him transformed into a bird, but we actually see he does a mask, where's a mask to do it? And we can see, like, his chin under the mask. So it's, it's, it's a shamanic type of character. Well, and so what they said was, well, that was, you know, angels and the Anunnaki and, you know, whatever. They're all people that were descended from the gods. But in the Paleolithic myth, what actually happened is people, the, the spiritual leader adorned the mask and he, he, um, he spiritually transcended to the great beyond, into the night sky. But he physically didn't go there. And so it's a, it's a transcendence. And it's, it's so they kind of have it backwards. And so what will happen when, you know, Eric Rodanigan and David Wilcox and this, uh, this, the guy with the Greek name I can't pronounce. Oh, Giorgio Sukolos. Sukolos, right. Uh, okay. What, what will happen? Well, they've already seen my stuff. Um, what would their show be like? If someone, if there's this like valid alternative point of reference that predates anything they have in their show, because they're saying this all happened, you know, eight to twelve thousand years ago. That's really their story. Um, they're not saying they're ancient aliens thirty-four thousand years ago. They're saying eight to twelve thousand years ago. Maybe someone showed up to teach them how to build the pyramids um, and do some work in the, with the Mayans on the side. But they're this fundamental story that we have the same myths. And we have human characters involved with these myths without ancient aliens of any type. We don't have graves or anything like in, in these images. But we have them 34,000 years ago. Completely debunks the ancient alien hypothesis. I will never be invited to contact in the desert. And, you know, you know, you probably just gotten di- disinvited by me being on the show. I'm going to put it out there. You need to know that. Oh, I've always been persona non grata, so it's okay. <laughs> I'm used to it. Oh, I have heat with a lot of people out there, Bernie. It's it's totally fine. You're in good company. <laughs> I, I did have dinner with one of the producers of the program, however, about two years ago. And I did let him know that I 
did notice a couple things on their on their show there that I just found pretty pretentious. I, I couldn't really support some of the things, which I shouldn't have never even opened my mouth during dinner. But what can I say? Well, they're very smart, and they're they're in the money business, of course. And I don't I don't believe they believe in you know ninety ninety nine percent of what they say. Cowboys and uh, UFOs. Exactly. Good it's, lord. Um, it's brilliantly done. And what's most important where we started from is that is the popular media and is more significant than any work in textbooks. Yeah, it's it's outstanding, really, how long that whole series has gone. And to backtrack just really quickly here, you mentioned China earlier. And mm-hmm. when you were there, did you visit any of those amazing caves they have out there? Um, the, the answer to that is, um, I'm not sure if the caves that you're talking about, I traveled, I lived, I was in China during the Tiananmen time period. And afterwards I came, I, you know, we were all kicked out, all the Westerners kicked out. Um, and then I came back and I traveled for a few months. I backpacked with an extra pair of underwear. And, <laughs> yes. um, I'm, I'm serious. I stayed in places that were less than a dollar a day. Mm. Okay? Um, and, um, I traveled to I traveled throughout China through the far northwest uh, territories, which was where the, the Uyghur people are, the, the ones currently in their re-education camps. I traveled into Inner Mongolia and the uh, Heilongjiang uh, region, which is the which is on the border of North Korea, right. Jilin province. I traveled down to Sichuan Bana, and which was which is within the you know the I guess the um, the drug triangle and on the border of Thailand. I traveled into Sichuan, China. Um, and where you have that the Sichuan hot, the spicy food. The only place I didn't travel in China when I was there was um, Tibet because it was closed. Tibet. Now can... I was referring to the Longyu caves. So I, I ha- so there are caves. I went to caves in Xinjiang. Ah, okay, okay. And um, those are still those are caves. Those are still had, great. I, I don't yeah. want to describe them as mummies, but they mm-hmm. were the equivalent. They were non-wrapped mummies. But at that time, I wasn't. I wasn't interested in this stuff. I see. Uh, mm-hmm. I was collecting, you know, knives, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever 24-year-old boy guy collects on his journey, right? You're trying to stab someone, Bernie. Well, you know, actually, <laughs> I had this great collection of knives, and I put them in my bag, and I was oh, checking cool. onto this Chinese airplane, and the bag was, bag was to go under the airplane. And the guy's going security, said, well, we can't let you on with the knives. I said, well, I said, well, they're going to be in check bags. I said, well, what if you went down under the airplane, somehow got through the floor, got the knives and stabbed the, the, the pilots. It was the most absurd thing. What they really want to do is confiscate the knives because, you know, the, the plane's taken off in an hour and what can I do with the knives? That's true. Um, and so that was their, their way of, uh. Um, <laughs> That's interesting. It was bogus. It was the wow. stupidest. It was, it, it was absolutely bogus. They uh, were going uh-huh. in the bag and they were being, I was, I was being separated from the bag at that time. So I had no access to them going forwards. Um, so good lord. Yes. Um yes. On a, on a side note now, there was another name I did want to bring up to you and that's Michael Tellinger. Have yes. you seen the photograph of the giant footprint? Um well I've seen actually a few different ones. Give me a location of it. Uh let's see. In China? No, no, no. That's not in China. I believe that's okay. in Africa. Okay. Yeah, I've seen those. Yeah. Not impressed. Okay. Um so what you're really asking the question, there's two questions you're asked, really, whether people take this. So one is whether giants. Right. And two is were there people walking among dinosaurs? Exactly, because that's, I was going to segue into the Ica stones. 
Yeah. Okay. Um, I know where I'm going. Okay, so here's my here's my opinion on it. I actually have no opinion on it because I go back 34,000 years. Ah, okay. So they, what they're talking about is way more distant in time. But here's more significant. This is even more significant than, uh, you know, the the alleged footprint in the stone. Is we have these pal- you have these Paleolithic images, especially this gallery of desks, and we have. If we go from one end to the other, we'll call it north to south. We have a man, and we'll call it, who holds a cosmic gang. We'll call him Hercules. And next to him is an eagle, which we're going to call a Gia. And then we have um, we have the horse, which is Perse- uh, which is Pegasus. We have a dolphin, um, which is uh, Pisces. We have next is Cetus. The, the we have a um, seal, which is Cetus, constellation Cetus. We go to Orion. Above Orion, we have the Barbary ape, two eye, which is Gemini, and the two eyes are Castor and Pollux. And then we have Mother Bear and Two Cubs is Ursa Major. Next to next to that we have the we have the the great we have uh, the great Auk who is Cygnus, and we have Draco. We've actually gone around, and there's many more constellations as the Greeks saw them. We've just gone around the sky as the Greeks knew them. Claudius Ptolemy, so we're talking about 1800 years ago, was um, um, was wrote the Algamest, and he is considered the the, uh, how should I say, the source of modern astronomy, okay? And so all the, most, two-thirds of the constellations that we know today come from, from Ptolemy. Well, Ptolemy had, he was also the, the head librarian of the library, of the library of Alexandria. He had a source. And was it, I don't believe Ptolemy had actually gone to the caves, but he had a source book. And he borrowed these exact images, put them into the astronomical record that we use today. So there was a there was a fellow named Newton, and um, he was uh, astronomer and historian at one of the I think it was University of Houston in Texas, and he had passed on a few years back. And he said Ptolemy was a fraud. Mm. He said he was a fraud. Strong words. Because there were constellations that Ptolemy couldn't see in his time, but he had in the record. And so somehow Ptolemy made he this made it up. Well, here's a different explanation: that Ptolemy saw the constellations. In the record from a different point in a different place. Well, that would make sense. Make total sense. Yeah. And so what's fascinating about this is the, the astro- physics and astronomy, the early state that we tr- we've had until my work was Ptolemy. It's the foundation of it all. When if we send somebody to the moon or we send a shuttle out to, to circle Mars or land on Mars, um, but circle Venus, it's all based on the work of Ptolemy. And Ptolemy's work is based on the work of Paleolithic artists 32,000 32, years before him. That's what that's what really baffles me about indigenous cultures. They learn various things and along the way. Uh, well, they learn things along the way, and they pass it on to others. Uh, well, like in cave paintings, that was a form of communication for a lot of these people. They told these stories that were, were sort of um, touching upon the surface very briefly here, but when it comes to advanced astronomical calculations and when to harvest properly. It's insane, really, that they had all this vast knowledge. It really makes you wonder, well, who the hell taught them all this? Exactly. So, And here's a pretty good example. Native Americans here in the Pacific Northwest, um, they lived by, they, they migrated in, um, in certain movements. So they weren't like, they were sort of semi-nomadic. And they moved to different plant and animal sources throughout the year. Well, if they were or too early or too late for the salmon, they missed the food. Or the food wasn't there when they arrived. Yeah. They had to know when the salmon were arrived or the people start. And that we, we today go to Costco, you know, we go to Safeway, you know, some of us go to, um, you know, 
new seasons. We have new season Northwest or um, Whole Foods, right? And uh, they didn't have that luxury. It was a live or die situation. And so within their calendars, within their culture, within their traditional practices, they had this knowledge. And they told it through stories. And I'll give you an example. When I, when I first started work, when I first figured out how the Samurai time with the sun and the moon, I went to the tribes and I asked them the question of, um, how do you do it and how do you know it? And they, everybody told me the same story. And it was a story about the swallow sisters that came up the river and had to do with the, the coyote and the, it dug the, the river and following the swallow sisters. The swallow sisters did bad things and as their penance, they always had to fly ahead of the salmon, of the first salmon. What they were saying was, you look for the swallows, and X number of days later, you will start to see the first salmon. That's the story, and that's the timing mechanism. Well, the person who told that story was named Chief, who traditionally told the story was Chief Tommy Thompson, one of the last great chiefs. And he died in the 1940s. And Tommy Thompson brought all the tribes in from the Columbia River Basin to Salilo Falls, where this, this, you, you see in the old pictures of the, the salmon jumping up and the people sort of catching with the nets. Oh, yes. But that was at Salilo Falls. Well, Tommy Thompson brought them all in. And what he did was he he set the first day you started to to um, fish for salmon and when you would stop in the lower part of the river so that salmon could go up the river to the, the other tribes and so they would be at peace. And how Tommy Thompson did it was, and it's written, his, his work is, is chronicled, is he would get up before the, the sun and he would look at the stars. And through the stars, the stars themselves would speak to him. They were telling him about time and space. And then as the sun rose, he had he had a pole, and it was a bird that he had carved at the top, and still there in front of the Salilo village, facing east. And in the, the, um, he would look at the shadow from the pole, which would again tell him time of year. And in Tommy Thompson's version of um, his religion and history and biology, he said that the great almighty was speaking to him. And there's a truth in that. And there's a truth in that that resonates among hunter-gatherers and ancient peoples around the world that whoever you call that the sun, you can call the sun Ra. You can call this this group a constellation Orion. They were all speaking to these people um, through the language of astronomy. Yeah, which is crazy. uh, It's it's actually fascinating. It is, yes. um, and how I learned about Tommy Thompson was I gave a presentation to the Ilmatilla tribe, which is about, um, you know, probably a four hours drive out of Portland. And I gave it to the tribal council. So this is all, let's call the, the great leaders in that tribe, fairly large confederation. And I started talking about the biological timing and the sun and the moon and so forth. And they went silent. And they start whispering to each other. And they, and they said, Tommy Thompson, Tommy Thompson. I hadn't heard that name before. And they, and one person said, why didn't he tell us? And afterwards, someone came up to me and I asked them, um, who was Tommy Thompson? And they said, well, they explained who he was and what his role was. And the answer was that he did tell them. He explained it through the religion. But when his religion died with the flooding of the, of the Columbia River, because they actually flooded that part of Slough Falls where he was and where his, his lodge was, they actually moved, the lodge is now, or the, the longhouse is now um, up on the cliffs. The, the pole is there with the bird on top, but there's a cliff in front of it so the religion doesn't work because they can't see east. They can't have that, that, um, that shadow. So they lo- through, when they, we flooded the Columbia Basin, that part of it, we, we, uh, we lost the falls. We moved the, the church, the longhouse, and we, they lost the religion. 
But that religion, they still carry on through the myth that they, everybody told me the same story about the Swallow Sisters and the Coyote and, and, um, the tr- Coyote Trickster and how one knows when the, the salmon will come up river. It's all there. We just have to listen and we have to believe that the myths can't, there's truth in the myth. That's a good point. Truth in the myth. A very good point. And of course, do you have anything in the works, by the way, before I even forget? You're not currently writing anything, are you? I'm not currently writing. In okay. fact, I don't, I probably won't write another book. Really? Because the, because uh, I finished my journey. And at the end of the journey was your to heroes, come back and tell my story. You finished your hero's journey. I finished my hero's journey. And, and I'm now sharing the story and sharing what I've learned. So I, I don't believe I'll write another book. And this was also the book of, I don't want to say it was the book of all books. It was the book of all books that I could write. Any other book I would write would be fundamentally right, rewriting the same book. So I can, you know, hypothetically write a book about Stonehenge or, but I'd be writing this, transferring the same story to Stonehenge. And I believe that the message now is not, is not best for me, is not best told for writing more books, but it's out there doing podcasts and presentations and, you know, meeting with pe- pe- people in the universities and collaborating with them. The, I see the next direction for me to go is a, the next step would be a documentary. So if anybody out there has a connection with somebody that wants to do a documentary on mythology, on Joseph Campbell and Carl Jung, the hero's journey, Pelican Cave Art, archaeoastronomy, and these fascinating subjects, you know, find me on my webpage and, you know, connect with me. But this is a highly visual subject. And I've made a bunch of videos, and any one of those videos become a, you know, a Netflix type of program. I was going to say, that would be good to see you on Netflix with some sort of documentary. And uh, going back to the ancient aliens theory, this is something I completely forgot to mention. Well, there is a cave in, in the Utah area. I think it's called the Sago Canyon. Okay. I'm going to look it up. How do you, remember how do you spell Sago? Uh, S-E-G-O. Okay. I think that's. Sago Canyon. Okay, okay. yeah. So I, <laughs> okay. Well, he spelled that, that right. That was pretty quick. That was easy to find. <laughs> okay, so yeah, this, this canyon area in Utah, yeah. uh, it dates back to 5,000 years BC. I, I, I'm just. Okay. I'm just throwing out a number. I think that's yeah, true. Yeah, that's, I, I, I don't, I can't validate that dating, but, so I'm, so the question is, are they aliens? Well, yes, they depict these, uh, they depict these uh, unusual looking uh, characteristics that don't seem to be- belong to any modern man, and some say they depict uh, alien-like beings with these overly exaggerated eye shapes and large heads, basically what we would describe as a tall gray. Yeah. So I'm going to answer your question through a question. I'm going to give you. I'm going to prime it with an example. Sure. Okay. okay. So in this Paleolithic cave image on the Gallery of Discs, we have a man who overlaps with the dolphin, and he, and he overlaps in such a way that it becomes a merman. Okay. The man also overlaps the horse and it becomes a centaur. And the, the horse overlaps with the eagle such as it becomes a, a winged horse pegasus. Okay. So we have, we have centaur, we have pegasus, we have, we have peg, the winged horse, and we have a merman. They're all depicted in the cave art. Does that mean that those, those beings existed? No. Okay. It doesn't so mean, that, that, it doesn't necessarily what, mean that. It, we, uh, through anthropomorphism, we see these things, what we see what the mind wants to see. Uh-huh. Now, the ancient Greeks were at the height of, tech, you know, science for their time. They spoke about centaurs as if they were walking down their own streets. Okay? That they did. 
Yes. <laughs> and lots of, and that Pegasus flute, Bellophone, I believe it was at Mount Olympus. And, um, they believe they, they had seen the same, Im- the same type of images that lo- we're looking at today. And they walked away that they're anth- uh, theriantropes, the mix between man, man and human. Correct. And we still carry those, that same psychology within us is Batman takes on the spirit of the bat and, and Spider-Man, the, the spider. And so man projects his psyche into the cosmos. We, we, not only did we see Pegasus as a winged horse, as a winged horse, but we projected into the night sky as a constellation. Yes. And among mm-hmm. Sagittarius, we, we, pro- we, actually with the, with the man becomes a centaur. Um, we projected Orion to the night sky and the, the merman, um, bec- is actually Aquarius, the constellation Aquarius. And so if we can, pro- if we can take an image from the cave walls and then project into the night sky as a constellation, that science that modern astronomy uses to figure out to get from point A to point B, you know, three stars to the right, you know, how far down the totem pole imagination are these so-called alien petroglyphs at Sagal Canyon? Yeah. I hear you on that one. (laughs) I'm with you on that one, yes. No doubt. No doubt. And, yes, you're right about these archetypes. And for the most part, these are extremely accurate, and we see them play out right before our eyes. Right on that television screen of ours. We see plenty. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> we we see um, plenty of examples of that in our current president. Yes. He is the authoritarian archetype. He's the mad king. That's He's him. the bully. Mm-hmm. But here's something about um, subject number one. And during during the debate with Hillary Clinton, well, they, they, he was asked, "What can you say nice about each other?" And she said that he's a good family man. Okay, that's really important. So, and, you know, he actually, what came out with um, some of the some of the interviews and the testimonies was he never thought he was going to be present, but he actually worried about being present because then his family would become exposed. And so while he is the bully to half the country, he's the hero to the other. Yes, his base, his core group, he is he's the hero. that hero. You know, he's the mm-hmm. mafia Don. You know, he's Don, he's, you know, Don Trump. Um, and, of course, the you know, you know, Don Corleone, it's all about the family. It's, it resonates. And so you, you can be the hero and you can be the hero and the monster at the same time. Look at this. It goes back to the animals. So we, here's a pretty good example is that lions in Africa, there's the, 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 the mature male lion has a pride of females and juveniles that he's sired. Well, if an, if another lion comes in and challenge him and wins, that lion Will then kill off the young. So by kill off the young, that they are no longer be, they're then, there's no more weaning from the females and they become sexually receptive again. And so he then becomes, that new lion then becomes the, 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 the king of the jungle, the king of the, the savannah. And then he becomes, he becomes the hero. He becomes Don Corleone. He becomes Don Trump. But to get to that point, he had to have killed off his rivals. So, it, it's so Don Trump and is really he is carrying out a basic instinct that is that comes from from animal beings. And will we ever change? The answer is, I don't believe so. I believe in thousands of years, our great descendants, will be having the same conversation that we have these archetypal characters that are within us that we can't escape from. The scenes will change. Maybe we'll be in space. The costumes will change. Maybe we'll have spacesuits on. 
but the fundamental stories will remain the same. They'll live and on. And we can say yeah. that because the same stories that we have in, in, on the big screen today go back to 34,000 years ago. The hero on his journey. The hero that's assisted by spiritual helpers. This hero that finds himself at the, at the climax moment of the journey and finds that um, that secret si- um, strong enough to let society free and then returns back home, there and back again, to tell the story. Yes, and Joseph Campbell wrote a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces in which mm-hmm. showed how the same gods appear, like you said, in different guises throughout history. And uh, for some people, political figures are the deity are the modern day gods for, for some of these yeah. individuals. Uh, lots of them, religion has religion. Uh, politics has become the new religion for some individuals out there. The way they embrace certain individuals and how these individuals are hoisted up to this, this, uh, platform that's holier than thou and yeah. they could do no wrong. And you see this and it, it's insane behavior to actually witness this yourself, but it's been quite fascinating and entertaining, Bernie, I must say. Absolutely. The new demigods. Right. And to put it out to your audience, I'm not a Donald Trump fan, okay? That's okay. Um, just the opposite. But as a concept, we can't we can't escape from these archetypal characters. We can't. There will always be bullies, and there will always be the, the bullied. There will always be the teacher and the apprentice. Um, and there will always be the trickster um, who, who tests us. And this pillar, the cave image, was made by the trickster, who tests the apprentice. Um, can you see beyond the red disc? Can you see the elephant in the room? Can you see the forest through the trees? And can you get past that brainstem-dominated psychology of, you know, the red discs? And, uh, you know, you hypothetically be walking to a bar and you see this absolutely gorgeous woman with a red dress and red lipstick and you're drawn to her. But is that truly the person that she is? And the answer should be, it's a yes or no answer. Sorry about that. I heard another strange voice coming through here. <laughs> okay, that's right. Well, the answer should be no, okay? The answer right. should be no. <laughs> Sorry about that, yes. Okay, Again, that's this, right. This, yeah. It should be no. <laughs> and so we're, we have to get, we, we, we individually have to get past our own issues. Um, and these issues have, have been gone on for tens of thousands of years. And b- before my work, when we looked at the, 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 the Don Trump of the world, it was Gilgamesh. The Epic of Gilgamesh, which dates about 4,500 years ago. The Great Flood was, story, um, yeah. Was um, dug up in the sands of, I believe, Iraq. And Gilgamesh takes this hero's journey story, and he is a horrible person. You know, he's, you know, he, if there was Me Too, it would have been plastered <laughs> across the, you know, every rock in Iraq. Um, he was the, he was the worst of the worst. Um, and he takes this journey, he, he learns about himself, and w- when he returns from the journey, he climbs the same steps of a rook that we start the story, but he sees in a whole new light. He's a completely different person. Um, and a, so it's the, a great read for those who have not read the epic Gilgamesh, of Gilgamesh. Yeah. And so Gilgamesh, mm-hmm. Gilgamesh was significant because in modern psychology, they look back 4,500 years ago and say, you know, people had the same issues that we have today. Hasn't gone away. That's true. It hadn't gone away. And so they'll often, psychologists will also quote, you know, actually not quote, but you know, point the finger at Gilgamesh. And so what I'm saying is that it's all, it's more than 4,500 years ago. It's at least 34,000 years ago. And people don't start, at, don't etch this astronomical tradition. Um, the, the person who comes up with the idea of the astronomy and the person who comes up with the idea of the myth doesn't just put it on the walls of a cave. 
It's told around the campfires for tens, if not hundreds of thousands of years before that. And so Mm -hmm. these issues that we have, this hero that takes you on his journey and he learns about himself and all his frailties and the frailties of mankind, this is this is a myth. These are archetypes that are fundamentally within us and go back, I would say, I'm going to say hundreds of thousands of years. We haven't changed. And therefore, if we haven't changed in 34,000 years and possibly hundreds of thousands of years, we're not likely to change in the next few years either. By the way, do you think the Earth is much older than... We know it to be. So I'm not a, I'm not a physicist, okay? Understood, yes. Uh, and, um, and the, the, the date of the Earth, you know, every textbook puts it back a few hundred million years, right? <laughs> okay. It seems to, yeah. <laughs> um, so the, that's, that's a physics question and I, I'm 34,000 solid that I'm, you know, I'm completely convinced about and I'm feeling pretty good about 300,000. No problem. Um, but I'm, now that's, that's beyond mine. But here's this is actually interesting. Um, what we can learn from this Paleolithic cave art, in addition to the the frailties of humanity, is that they're telling us the story of the cosmic egg, and they have all these constellations that overlap each other. Um, well, we can actually now go back into our astro- we use our astronomical software to see if our st- software is correct. And so how how the astronomical software works is it's based on based on mathematical models. And so if we want to put a man or a woman on a, in a distant, in a you know distant star someday, we have to know the math. Otherwise, we're gonna we're gonna send the ship to the wrong the wrong star. And right now, it's based on on the um, mathematical formulas. We can now go back 34,000 years ago to see what has has or what has actually we can we can massage the astronomical math based on the Paleolithic cave image. And so it's by having this teacher's edition book, yes. we can actually see, we, we can see, look at the, the tests we're giving today to see, in fact, if we have the right answers. Absolutely. And uh, moving along slowly here, because we're almost out of time, uh, many great cultures out there seem to really focus on their dreams. They interpreted those dreams in various ways. And do you personally feel that to be something that's beneficial in all our lives to break down these dreams that we occasionally have, sometimes reoccurring dreams. Absolutely, yes, yeah, absolutely. Here, here, here's, so we did the, um, an answer question with a question. Here's an interesting one. Um, there's, a, there's a mountain in Morocco. It's called Jebel Tobacal. And Jebel Tobacal is Mount Atlas. It's the story of the, from the ancient, it's the place of the ancient Greeks where Perseus climbed with the head of Medusa and turned the, um, Atlas into stone to become the face of the mountain. Love that it's story. the mountain that Hercules climbed on his on, on one of his labors to retrieve the golden apples. Yes. Right? Um, and the, the people Herodotus said that the people of of of, of Mount Atlas he called them Atlant he called them Atlantes. Okay, I'm going to tell you. Um, and he predates Plato. He said that they were a place where the people never ate a living thing, therefore they were vegetarians. And it was a place that people never dreamed. That's creepy. Isn't, so why would, so here's a question. Amazing. If, if, if the love of your life is in the bed next to you, is next to you in the bed, would you gr- dream about another person? I probably would. Okay, okay. That's a joke. Okay, if you were at the cosmic mountain, <laughs> yes. hypothetically, at the cosmic mountain, would you be dreaming about another cosmic mountain? Probably not. Okay, so what I think Herodotus was saying through, through the, the lore of those people is that this was a place of origin. Right. And this place of origin, Jebel Tobacal, is within a few days' walk from Jebel Erhud, 
the place we have the earliest remains of Homo sapiens from 300,000 years ago. Yeah, that, that's pretty interesting. Is very, it? yeah, very it's intense. It's the original place. It is the place that the heroes climb, that cosmic mountain. It is the place that this hero in this Paleolithic cave travels to in Western North Africa. Amazing stuff. And going back to dreams really quickly here, do you dream in black and white or in color, Bernie? Um, I can't say that I dream in color, but I do remember a lot of my dreams. And I tell you a dream I have during the writing of this book. Sure. And, um, there was, um, my, I was, this was early in the morning and my dog, which had been deceased for uh, two years or so, he came to my bed and he's with his nose, his wet nose, he's a beast light, wet nose, and he's nuzzling my, my, on my face and he's trying to wake me up and he he wakes me up and and he starts whimpering, whimpering, he wants to go out. So he takes me to the, he takes me to the door, to the door of the bedroom, which went out to the porch, and it was a glass door. And on the other side of the glass door, I saw a cheetah. And, uh, um, so the, so I go to open the door, and my, the dog disappears, and the cheetah disappears. Okay? The next night, the dog did, my dog didn't go out. The next morning, the same dream. So I go to the door, and the cheetah's there. But my dog left. This time that I open the door, my dog, I see him run away. And so what I believe the message, a few messages in that dream. One was, I needed to let go of my dog. Mm, yeah. Because, you know, you know, when our dogs die, you know, we weep and we cry and they're so, we're so emotionally attached to them because we've had, we've, they've been our friends for, you know, my dog was 16 years. That was a, that was a, a symbolic dream. It was a symbolic dream Word. to let go of my dog to let go. and what had been from that past. So then the cheater, why is the cheater there? Well, very interesting is that, Recently, before that, we George and I we had identified a cheetah and, and her um, kittens in this Paleolithic cave image, and the cheetah was one of the animals in the image that at that point we weren't thinking Africa, and um, we were thinking maybe the cheetah is somewhere in Eurasia or something, and it was, but that's what struck me as I've got to be looking at Africa through that cheetah. It came to me a dream, so in that dream it was to, to work out my problems of the day. And also those are my personal conscious that have been, they've been haunting me for 200, for, you know, for two years or so. And so through our dreams, we learn about ourselves if we allow ourselves to. And we, we, we can find solutions to the problems of, of our lives. By the way, you almost said it lasted 200, 300. Yes, yes, that's exactly. It's, it's two it's, years. It's two well, years. you know, exactly. it, it's, it's funny you see that because some dreams that I've had almost seem like they'd lasted for that long. In a weird so the, sense. You know, the question, you know, here's really the question of, I would actually do, I would say that hmm. while that individual dream was of my dog and the cheetah, but I believe that we carry dreams for hundreds of thousands of years. So this yes. dream is a cosmic mountain. I think you're right you know, about that. All around the world, people have this cosmic mountain. If they don't have a mountain, so it's for, for the Hindi people, it's Maru. The, 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 for the Greeks, the Olympians held on Mount Olympus. I live in Oregon and it's Mount Shasta to the south or up here is a, their sacred mountain. To, it, to the Tibetans, it's Mount Everest and the Japanese, it's Fuji. There's cosmic mountains all over China. They, each, they have other different types of holy mountain names for every freaking one of them. And when we don't have mountains, like the Giza, the, um, the, the flatland of Egypt, we built pyramids. And in, the Mayans built these pyramidal shapes as well in, in this, these flat lands. So why do we do this? Well, it's not just to climb that cosmic mountain, the transcendent beyond, but we carry these images in our dreams. They're symbols. And that's what Jung, Jung said, Swiss psychologist Jung said. Yes. 
cosmic mountain is an archetypal memory. And he found that the two most common um, non-organic characters in dreams were the, the body of water and a mountain. If you walk into any middle school, where, actually elementary school, where they're drawing their first, painting their first landscapes, you're going to find two-thirds of that class has a mountain in the background and they have some body of water in the foreground. You uh, actually creep me out because I remember being in third or fourth grade where a lot of paintings had mountains and water in them. Except, remember weird. Close Encounters? <laughs> he goes to um, the, all the characters, Richard Dreyfus and others, they're drawn to the cosmic mountain where the aliens will come. Oh, yes. And uh, what's real now, this is, and of course, it's Devil's Tower, which was called a bear lodge by the Lakota Sioux. But this is where it's really creepy, okay? This is this is like the most amazing thing, is that the Lakota Sioux tr- traveled around the the um the um the, that region, the Black Hills, and and they traveled around. This actually spiritual group traveled around the spring, and the, each each monument was associated with a different constellation. And the last monument that they they went to was Bear Lodge, so-called Devil's Tower. And it's where they met the constellation Gemini, which kind of looks like Devil's Tower, right? You know, it's that cylindrical shape. And at that place, they had their Sundance ceremony. And the Sundance ceremony is where the hero transcends. It's the same story. And they carry, so the same story, um, Steven Spielberg pulled this, this, this story came out of one of the writers of the collective, his collective unconscious. Not even, I'm, I have no, I don't believe Spielberg knew that that was the same story. Um, that where they were meeting the aliens was where the Lakota Sioux was transcending to the great beyond through the constellations. And so we, is that creepy? It is. Sort of. But I believe we carry these symbols, these archetypal memories in our collective unconscious that we can't escape from. In the same way we can't escape from Don Corleone and Don Trump or, or the, the lion that, who is both the hero and the bully. Um, and the teacher and the apprentice, the mother and the child, and the trickster. Um, we have all of these archetypal characters within us. And they manifest through our dreams. They, they speak to us through our dreams. And we, we retell them through stories, whether they're the, the big screen or we retell the, the stories of the ancient Greeks. We can understand those stories because they tell us about ourselves. And a story, they're about ourselves and stories that we keep repeating one day to the next. It's really fascinating stuff. Carl Gung, way ahead of his time. Very, very brilliant, brilliant man. Yes, very brilliant. And, of course, going back in time quickly here before we wrap it up, I did want to ask you about Neanderth- uh, Neanderthals. rather. Yes. I did want to ask you about their breeding with, I guess you could say, modern man. What exactly sure. happened to them? Okay, so um, Neanderthals died off um, in the DNA record about 40,000 years ago. Um, Neanderthals were in Eurasia, um, whereas we don't, we don't have DNA evidence that Neanderthals were in Africa. Um, we have DNA evidence, let's say the area around Israel we have is kind of the, the cross between Homo sapiens and, and Neanderthal. And so what happened to Neanderthals? And I wrote about it in my book, I wrote a chapter about it. And this is what I believe happened. Okay, I believe when we came out of we came out of Africa, we had a better toolkit. And one of the components in our toolkit were dogs. 
In these Pelican Cave images, we have dogs that we could recognize today. So we have the, uh, the Aswan Slohi from Western North Africa. We have the, 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 the Canary Presarios, the Canary dog, and now in the Canary Islands. We have the, we have the, um, uh, the Spitz dog. And when you have a dog with you, you can hunt better. You can, you can, you can protect yourself better. And when you killed, if you, I used, I used to be a big game hunter, and it's a, it's a bear, you know, it's tough finding the animals, even if you have a good shot. And so if you have a dog which is illegal in Oregon to use, you can find that game. You can send out a dog to pin down a bison and then go hunt, then go take down, take the, the bison with your spears. And so what we did, one of the things that we did was that we, we, um, at least 34,000 years ago, and in the DNA record of dogs, dogs we can go back possibly 100,000 years ago of domestication. And we came out of Africa, we were the, we were the predator. Um, we were the invasive species, and we had t- kits. We had um, the dog in our toolkit that made us. Um, you know, we were the we were the Terminator. Yeah, we were know? the we, alphas. You know? Correct. And uh, so that's what I believe. I believe that the major the major factor was the dogs, um, which didn't exist in Europe. Just make domesticated dogs didn't exist before we arrived in the record. And we the dogs we have we have like the canary dog. Canary dog is like a 70, 80 pound animal. I mean, we see this image of the, that dog in the record. The Aswan Slohi can run down deer and gazelle. Um, they, they actually run them down. They bump them over. Um, can, and so you don't have to throw a spear to take down a gazelle with an Aswan Slohi. Um, and we also we also had domestic domestic. We had trained um, eagles. So we had falconry, which could take down other birds. The thought of uh, humans interbreeding with uh, Neanderthals. Mm. It's just so strange because it is in our DNA. Yes. A very, a very small percentage is in. Four or five percent. People in, in your, your, your age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's so weird though. Can you imagine just a crow magnet man just walking around and he sees a Neanderthal and he just mates with it? I'm, well, I'm sure it didn't go just like that, but, uh, well, maybe it did. I'm not quite sure. We weren't there. So how do we know these things were even seduced into this sort of thing? But. Uh, just the whole thought is humorous and very baffling. So there's an image that I have, like, people can find on my webpage, beforeorion.com, and it's a Janus figure, type of figure, two heads in, in different directions. One of them is Homo sapiens, I call him the Nordic man. The other one I call Man X. Man X looks Neanderthal in every possible way, and their heads are, are joined back to back. And I believe that this was in the gore, this is in so-called Gorham etching, and I believe the Paleolithic artist in that cave was telling us about the past and the future in the same way of Janus. Um, and so not only do we, um, we did mate with them, but we recognize that we, ha- we have Neanderthal in us, but that was something that was disappearing because we were overpowering them as a, in a population. But we actually, it is the most fascinating image to have this, this back to head, this joined head. Homo sapien, what I believe to be is Neanderthal. And the man with the, the Homo sapien has a bit full beard and he's bald on top. And I remember the first time George Schauer looked at these, he, he asked me the question. He says, you know, did they shave? And well, that was, that was the oldest image we had of Homo sapiens by about 15,000 years. And I thought it was funny. George said, no. That's that. wild. Yeah. And, um, and so it was like validation that, you know, I was onto something and that someone independently, you know, had actually seen this working working through the images, um, and we we never he he couldn't tell me that we we, we definitively can't say what this man X is, but he has all he has all the features of the Neanderthal, 
Um, and so the Paleolithic people had encountered Neanderthals. And they, they knew what they looked like. And they, we have this image that is about, it's about the size, a little bit bigger than the size of your thumbnail of the two back to back. So it's, it's, it's tiny, but it has all the, uh, the features of both. And the, the Homo sapien man has this, this big beard and this kind of little pug nose. But it's on my webpage for Orion.com. It's fascinating images, um, that were, before my work came out, this would, this was impossible. This yeah. couldn't, this just couldn't happen. All of this is just completely fascinating. I feel like I could even talk to you for another hour here, but again, we'll do we, another show. We, we have another to. Time. Yeah. I mean, I'm completely baffled and fascinated by all of this. Uh, I'm just listening to you and just thinking about so many different uh, things to get into here with you. And one of the things that just popped into my mind just right now is, have you ever heard of the story of Zana? I'm not quite yeah. sure if you have. It's, it's a story of a, of a ape woman of the Caucasus Mountains. And apparently this, this, uh, I guess you could say woman that many people on, online, there, there's, it's, this story's been going on forever. But they believe that Zana was uh, basically some sort of uh, Neanderthal, turns out. And they thought it was a Bigfoot. Okay. That's actually, this is interesting. Because that's actually, this, um, the man-beast is an archetypal character, okay? Um, oh, yes. And we find the man-beast in Gilgamesh. People we don't do. talk, want to talk, talk about it, but really, Enk, I believe the character's name is Enkidu. Enkidu, yes. And it's his alter ego, and he battles he battles with it. And he but kills it. It's, it. A man, it's, an, it's an ape-like man of the forest. Um, and so I believe that the, just as, you know, Spider-Man is the spider and Batman, Bat and so on, I believe that we have this, we project this animal being from us. And so we, when we're walking through the woods and we hear, you know, the crunching off in the distance and we hear, you know, breaking over the branches, you know, some people think it's a bear, but the, the, but we really project it off as some sort of a Bigfoot. And so we have it in, in the record going back 34,000 years. So the answer, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, we have the Gilgamesh. The answer is, do we have a Bigfoot, any Bigfoot-like characters in this pale of the cave images? The answer is no. But what we do have, we have other fairy anthropes. We have the merman, we have the, the avianoid man, we have the man, the centaur. So we have this, but we have this, this, the animal is still in us, you know? Very primitive, you yes. You take, Batman puts the, the, the mask on to become the bat. The, in these images, the man puts on the bird's mask to become the avianoid. But these archetypal characters, the etherianthrope, our need to gain strength or find fear um, with, with these, these man-beast animals will always be with us. Um, and so the, it's, I believe it's part of our psychology. I believe there, we will always find there will always be Bigfoots. But the Bigfoots will always be in our minds. And that's not that, just, you know, people despair and they go looking for Bigfoots and going through that. It's, you know, <laughs> yes. it's healthier to go hiking through the, the woods looking for Bigfoots than gambling in Vegas. Very, um, yes. I would have so, to. And so, you know, agree. have fun in the woods and um, just go for it. But I believe that it's part of our psychology to project these man-beast type of animals, as we're finding in the Pale of the Cave images, and today, no one really says they found a mermaid, right? Right. Um, but we project other characters, um, Bigfoot, Batman, Spider-Man, you know, the latest, of course, Ant-Man, and Aquaman, which is the merman. Yeah, Aquaman, which is a yeah. film I still haven't seen. Good movie, Merman. That's I have to is. watch it sometime. But, Bernie, I do want to thank you tremendously for being a part of the program. I really did enjoy our chat and, of course, your book, Before Orion, Finding the Face of the Hero. And I thought it was quite interesting right 
in the prologue of that, you mentioned Bobby Fischer, a name yeah. that I didn't even think I would ever read again. And, and it shot me back through time and going back to chess, playing, playing, uh, playing the game of chess when I was very young, back when I was somewhat decent, but of course not to the level of a Bobby Fischer. I mean, come on now. It's about genius. And Bobby Fischer takes his own personal hero's journey. But if there, Bobby was a, a master, a genius among master ch- chess players. And if there were geniuses as Bobby Fischer 20 years ago, who basically learned, 40 years ago, learned it in his, in his Brooklyn apartment, there could have been geniuses 34,000 years and it goes hundreds of thousands of years ago. You know, we have better toys now, but that psychology, that, that ability that Fischer had to play games in his head. And learning, yeah, learning your opponent's move and all of that, it also reminded me of the book, The Art of War. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Love it. Ta- yes. <laughs> I'm telling you, I could talk to you for another hour here, but of course, another show, another show. We'll do it again. Uh, Bernie, of course, the book is Before Orion, Finding the Face of the Hero. His website is beforeorion.com. And amazing, Bernie. I'm so glad you were here and spent some time with us. I definitely want to give you the final word, any words of encouragement throughout uh, our individual journey and your journey or anything you want to get off your chest, now is the time, Bernie. The stage is yours. We all have to answer the call. And I answered the call when I looked at these images, and I was, I was, you know, basically biology background, statistics, and I was, I went past the red discs, and I saw these spiritual characters, and I first said to myself, you know, am I ready to accept this? Am I ready to write about this? Um, am I ready to write about a merman and a centaur? And is this real? Is this real? And the answer is that um, I, they're real in our minds and they're real in our psychology and that you have, if you answer the call, you will go to places that were unimaginable before that time. And so step out of your comfort zone, put, put behind all, you, you put the ego on the shelf, forget about the religions that people have been indoctrinating you and, you know, turn, close the textbook and, you know, go to places on your own to experience for yourself. Great final words, Bernie. I do appreciate that, and thank you so much again for being here, and we'll touch base in the near future, my friend. Thank you, Michael. All right, take care, Bernie. And there he goes, ladies and gentlemen. That was Bernie Taylor. Great, great guest. And when I return, Michael, the sedated man, makes his arrival on the program. Don't go anywhere. Stay tuned. Planet Earth about to be recycled. Your only chance to survive with us and welcome back ladies and gentlemen here we are again for round two and i am joined by another soul michael baker let's bring him in michael are you there i am perfect i'm glad you're alive thank you yeah welcome alive as well (laughs) yes and um welcome to the program and this is the second half and i'm so glad you have stayed up to be on the program here. Really appreciate that. Well, I'm thankful you had me on very, very much. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. And of course, you are the host of your own show called The Sedated Man. Correct. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that before we jump into all sorts of things here. <laughs> uh, well, The Sedated Man is basically for uh, Christian men. And the whole idea behind it is uh, the way society's gotten to be is there's like this rain down upon men that they're 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 too masculine and they're just too this and they're too that and a lot of men within their churches and their fa- their families and their communities for that matter are really stepping back and stepping down and 
and uh and are afraid to show them their true selves i guess you could say and my whole mission really is to uh to help them to find that at least within the pages of scripture uh there's no such thing as a mediocre christian and that they need to step back up and they need to step out and if they want to see change it's got to start within their own their own their houses themselves and uh you know that's the only time their congregations and their communities can uh, begin to really feel the change that they need yes and of course you yourself are a veteran correct i am yeah i did uh two tours in iraq and i was uh i was 24 years in the national guard in my state montana and i retired in august Oh, wow. What were those two tours like, by the way, and when were they exactly? Uh, well, the first tour was, uh, let's see, it was 0405, and the second tour was 10 and 11. I wasn't a door kicker. I was support. Uh, so, I mean, my, my jobs were, were different. The first time I, I handled detainees and I handled, uh, information really. And the second tour, I was a supply sergeant and I dealt with the equipment and I dealt with quite a few other things outside of that. But, but they, you know, like any soldier, it was stressful. And, and I mean, it's a 24 seven stress. I mean, especially for the door kickers. I had a tremendous amount of respect for the door kickers. And for those who don't know what a door kicker is, yeah, I was going to say, have to, yeah, I was going to yeah, say, explain. Are, <laughs> yeah. No, those are the guys who have to go out on patrols. They're the guys who have to apprehend. They're the guys who are constantly out. You know, with their, with their weapons poised and, uh, and ready to fight at any point. The support guys are the guys in the back that make those, make those missions possible, so to speak. Oh yes. Very, yeah. very, um, powerful stuff you do. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it, there's a lot of guys trying to do it and I applaud each and every one of them. Yeah. But I don't, I don't think the space is saturated by any stretch. So. Yeah, and interesting enough, I have a lot of listeners who are in the military, and I yep. think I think it's probably because for a long time on YouTube I would just put EOD. Well, I still do, but I would put EOD on the end of my shows for end of days. Right, and of course that's also for the explosive <laughs> ordnance disposal. Yeah, I knew a lot of those guys, and again, those guys are uh, those guys are pretty alpha. <laughs> yeah, they're crazy. That's what you mean. Exactly. I, I, I would often joke with those guys, you know, that you guys are crazy. <laughs> they will. I mean, a few of them have contacted me and they definitely have told me they listen while they're out there. And I'm just, I, yeah. it just trips me out. And I, I, I kid around and I say, if you're listening to me, you, you'll never lose in battle. <laughs> there you go. Pretty good words <laughs> of encouragement, I'd say. Absolutely. So I, I get them fired up sometimes. Some, oh, yeah. Some of the younger guys I, I've talked to out yep. there and I'm just uh, baffled when I see different places like Afghanistan and Pakistan that they're listening in and I already know who 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 they are actually. Yeah. And well the, you know those guys they need they need something that reminds them of home, something right. they can do, something that takes them away from what they're doing and where they're at. I didn't understand that uh, Michael at all. I I mean, yeah. excuse me, I have to clear my throat a little bit here. No, that's fine. Yeah, excuse me there. Um I didn't know I played any sort of significant role to anyone, to be honest with you. And, of course, these individuals out there, I didn't even know. And, and I would say, I, w- I would give them a shout-out. I didn't even know it was them. I would just give the, the country a shout-out. But right. later on, I got an email from those places telling me that that's, that's where they're located and they're listening and they love the show, blah, blah, blah. It just it really puts things into proper perspective for me, in other words. 
Well, you know, a lot of people don't realize that when, I mean, fellow soldiers, we refer to each other as Joes. So when Joes are, are stuck in places they don't want to be. Yeah. And the only, the only thing they want to do is be home with their wives and their kids or their moms and their dads. I mean, depending on the age and how many deployments they've had. I mean, you know, think little things like radio shows that most people wouldn't think about are tremendous encouragements because that's, that's home. You know, I mean, for me, I would go outside and I would look at the Big Dipper because to me it was consoling that I could also see the Big Dipper from my front porch. Oh yes. That could you know, definitely so, remind you of uh, yeah. something familiar, something that you're comfortable with. So Oh yeah. Totally. So it doesn't surprise me at all that your show was that way or that your show inspires those guys and you know helps keep them grounded. I really do appreciate that. I, again, never really considered that and it blows me away all the time. I get all sorts of emails and lots of times I don't even know how to respond to them. Yeah. Well, your show holds interest, Michael, so don't be surprised. I, well, I don't like to be pretentious. That's the whole problem. <laughs> you know, I don't like to put myself over, but it's yeah. just, again, I, I don't, I don't perceive myself that way, but others, mm-hmm. we don't know exactly how we come across to anyone really, nor, nor the role we play in their lives. Exactly. You're exactly correct. Yeah. So it just trips me out. And, um, one of the last things I heard on one of your episodes, you discussed the VA. And again, <laughs> it got me into thinking about all the veterans I've talked to, the ones that listen and the ones I know in person and the ones yeah. that I know who are gone. Yeah. And of course, I'm referring to an article about the suicide rate for the younger veterans that increased by more than 10%, if I recall. Well, veterans, as a general rule, are twice as likely to commit suicide as their civilian counterparts. Ooh. Yeah. See, people, I mean, if you want to delve into this a, a little bit, that's sure. great. Uh, because, I mean, this actually has a lot, you know, as a vet, uh, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of Christian veterans that I, I knew while I was in and that I still know and, and that, uh, that I, I guess you could say mentored or coached or, or was just there to listen to. But, you know, People don't really, in fact, I think it was uh, two podcasts ago I did uh, five things you need to know about veterans. But vets really just want to be like everybody around them, you know, and and everybody wants to praise them. And, and we appreciate that. But the things that are going on inside of us, nobody can really understand because they haven't endured, you know, whatever it is each of us has gone through. And so they just wonder, well, why can't they just get over that? Or why don't they just go, go to the doctor? Or why don't they just, why don't they just, you know, because that's an easy, that's an easy answer for the civilian. So, so what happens is because they want to be like everybody else at the same time, they don't feel like everybody else. Mm. And so they begin to separate themselves because then they feel like they can't be like everybody else. And so, you know, people of families, of course, get concerned. Guys begin to get violent. And I mean, it just escalates from there. And as far, I mean, I'm, I don't know if you remember or not. I'm not a fan of the VA. Yeah, correct. I was, <laughs> I was, yes, I was just going to uh, ask you since your experience with the VA and are you yourself having any sort of difficulty adjusting, Michael, when you, when you did return? Well, when I came back the first time, I was told that I had PTSD, but, uh, so I didn't have a great, childhood and what i was told was that i had ptsd since i was a kid and that my first mm. tour to iraq seriously inflamed it and uh and i'm not a fan you know as many as many vets i'm not a fan of doctors i'm not a fan of meds i hear and you. I, and i'm not a fan of shrinks i mean because all they want to do is they want you to talk everything out and for a lot of vets that just doesn't work 
And so I told him, I said, no, I'll take care of it myself. Yeah, you know, Michael, that you're right about that. Uh, talking to people about their issues definitely does work to a certain degree, but mm-hmm. it, it doesn't exactly fix everything. Yeah. That's one thing a lot of the, the general public doesn't even seem to have a grasp on or an understanding of. And I had this discussion with one of the professors back when I was taking Psychology 101. Mm-hmm. I brought up uh, veterans and sort of some of these issues. And I said, if even if they have a psychologist or a shrink or whatever, uh, these issues are, will still be problematic in their lives. Because Absolutely. anything could, well, not anything, but certain things can trigger back uh, those memories that we do suppress. Mm-hmm. And we got into this really interesting discussion, and they sort of agreed with me, but then they didn't. I don't, I don't know if it's because I was a student, and they were, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I do know. But I was just saying, you just can't fix everyone. No. It doesn't work that way. Well, and not everybody needs the same fix. Exactly. You know, but they want to shove them all in this, this therapy box. And, and quite honestly, you know, if, if vets aren't talking to their best friends about these things, they don't want to talk to, uh, here's a prime example. All right. And, and this does get me fired up a little bit. Here's a prime example. They sent me to a shrink when I first got back. I had to go to three sessions with a shrink to be evaluated. Okay. So they sent me to a, this is my air quotes, Christian shrink. Ah, okay. Yes. So, so I went. I had to. I was obligated to under under orders. And so, as many vets are, by the way. But I went, and about at the beginning of the third interview, the guy looks at me and he says, he says, Mike, I'm really just waiting for you to open up here. You're not really opening up. <laughs> and I said, dude, I don't know you. I don't know anything about you. Why on earth would I come home and tell a complete stranger all of my history and all of my concerns? And I, I said, I don't know you. I'm not just going to tell you those things. And he thought that was a problem. But to the normal person, I mean, to your, your friends, you'll tell certain friends certain things. You're not going to tell other friends other things because you just don't know them. Exactly. Or, yeah. or acquaintances. Yeah, exactly. And therapy's just not designed that way. Yeah, there's there's things you say and things you don't. Yeah, it's just, exactly. Yeah, that's the way it goes. And Exactly. I, I've always been under that mindset as well. Yeah. I mean, the VA is now starting to look into different types of therapy. I know EMDR is starting to get big, and uh, EMDR is one that I've been looking into, and uh, I wish I could remember exactly what it stands for. It's eye movement. Oh, God, I can't remember the other two letters. But okay. the whole idea is that when they have you, they have you recollect certain things, and they do these they do these motions with their hands, and it has something to do with the eye movements that you're having at the time, and they can somewhat untrigger your body from the memory that you're repeating. Don't don't quote me on that exactly, but it's been super super effective with a lot of vets. Understood. And since Trump took control, he did vow to make improvements with the uh, VA. Have you yourself personally seen any of these uh, significant changes, Michael? Well, a lot of people don't understand that the VA is this huge machine. It's a huge calam. Yes. Yeah, and it's seriously broken. All right, and so I have no doubt. And I, and I know the Trump's, the Trump questions are coming. I listen quite often. So. (laughs) Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. So, so Trump can make changes or he can order changes. But I mean, there are so many levels that those changes have to go through that 
you know, the odds of seeing them within a year are unlikely before you really start to see a flow. Right. Uh, yes. However, however, I have heard, I had to reinsert myself into the VA system since I retired. And it's somewhat of a slow process, but I've, I've heard from a few vets that, or not from the vets, but from a few of my close friends who actually work in the VA that it has become a lot smoother process and that things, things aren't nearly as clogged up going down the line as they were. So in that respect, I've heard that, but I have not yet experienced that myself, if that makes sense. I understand. Well, that's good then that there are changes being made. Oh yeah. Because I know you didn't really have too many great experiences yourself <laughs> well, early on. I had, yeah, I had a, I had a physician assistant look at me straight in the face. Uh, because what they tell you is when you go to the VA, they say you need to tell them everything that's going on with you and any pre-existing conditions you had that are now really, really bothering you after deployment. Okay. And so, <clears throat> so I had the, the PA, I gave her the whole rundown of issues I was having and she looked me straight in the face and said, are you just trying to get more money out of the VA? <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. And that was my last appointment. Well, I can understand why it was. <laughs> my yeah. goodness. I was super impressed. So, Michael, when you did your tours, did you see a lot of action out there? Well, as a support guy, I was uh, mainly back on the on the FOB doing what I needed to do. But, I mean, there was, you know, there were rockets launched on a regular basis, and there were uh, mortars that would come in pretty regular. And there were a few close calls. I got, I was in, I had one duty I had to do where I had to take a truck outside the wire <clears throat> and uh I had a couple of Humvees with me and I did get buzzed by a rocket. Oh my. And uh crazy. Well it's it's okay, it's somewhat of a funny story in the fact that <laughs> the civilian uh counterparts were not allowed to take anything outside the wire. Okay. And so they they would go through and they had septic trucks that had to go outside and get dumped and so that was our job. All right. We had to go out fully armored and dump these septic trucks. So I was driving one of those trucks when I got buzzed by a rocket. Oh man, that, yeah, that must have freaked you out a bit. Well, I could feel the air off it when it went by. Yeah. They were shooting Oof. at a tower and we happened to be perfectly in line with the tower as we were coming out. And, uh, yeah, you could hear it. The, the guy in the Humvee in front of us locked up his brakes because he, he heard it. I felt <laughs> it. It was moving pretty fast. I didn't quite see it, but I felt it come by the window and it landed about 50 feet behind the Humvee behind me and didn't explode. Damn. But I, oh, well, do you want another, do you want another instance as well? Sure. I mean, go okay, ahead. Well, I mean, that's pretty here, incredible. Here's, here's, here was my big story. First deployment. So I was running the civilian gate, which is where all of the civilians came in when they wanted meetings with any of the higher ups inside. So all of the informants would come to the civilian gate. All of the Iraqi police would come. All of the Iraqi army would come. Anybody who was going to come in and have conference with any of the higher ups inside had to come to my gate and they had to get approval from, from me basically. So I showed up one morning. I went into the, uh, the main area and I checked out any alerts and there were alerts for stolen ambulances and stolen Iraqi uniforms. And so but that's just so you know, hey, just because you see an ambulance or a uniform doesn't necessarily mean they're actually Iraqi medics or Iraqi soldiers. So I got out to the gate. None of my contingent was there yet. They were running heavy operations that day, so the tower crews were on a skeleton crew. So I actually had mechanics that were covering the tower that was on my gate. Okay. So they were running skeleton. So anyway, I got there. I knew one of the guys up in the tower. He yelled down at me that there was somebody standing at the gate already. 
or there was a guy standing down by the tire tower. He had come up the walk, which was barricaded a little bit, and he was waiting because my guy in the tower had a gun on him, and he was like, you know, don't go any further. So I was still in full battle rattle, which just means I had all of my gear on. Right. And uh, and I went out, and at that point, uh, I had learned enough Arabic that I could muscle my way through a conversation if I needed to. Smart. Yeah. So yeah. So so here I I've got an Iraqi soldier standing out by the tower. And I can see when I get to him, just out by the gate that we haven't opened yet, is an ambulance with two Iraqi soldiers standing by it. So, so I've got flags going off already, right? Right. So, the the soldier I'm talking to, he's trying to talk, and he has very little English, and so we're going back and forth about what it is he needs. And finally, it comes out. He says, "Weapon." I have, they got. I I get that they got shot up. They were they had confiscated this ambulance, and they were bringing it to us. And he said, weapon, he kept saying weapon. And finally, after a little bit, I finally got out of him, bomb. And he was trying to tell me there were explosives. And I was like, crap. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. So I called up to the main, and uh, and they were like, well, your guys aren't there yet, but they needed it investigated because this ambulance was sitting right at the gate, and the 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 supply recon guys were coming out any minute to go on supply run and they would have to run right by that ambulance. And I was concerned about if it was a, a, a VBID, which is just a vehicle born IED, you know, vehicle bomb. Mm-hmm. I was concerned that if they set that, if that, if that's what it was and they set it off while that, while that convoy was going by, that was a problem, obviously. So I, I told my guy in the tower, I said, I want, I want binoculars on this guy and I want weapons trained. I said, I'm going to go out. I'm going to at least bring him into the parking lot and get him off the main supply route. So he's got a gun on him. I start walking out there. The closer I get to this ambulance, I can see the windows are gone. And a little closer, so another flag goes up. I keep going. Now there, now I see bullet holes in the side of the ambulance. Uh-oh. And I'm like, oh, my God. So, <laughs> And now I've, now I've got three Iraqi police out there, but I've got two guys in the tower with guns on them. And so I figured, well, I highly doubt they want to just blow up one American, but you know, but if they blast it, at least they're not going to kill several. So I get out there and the guy, there's a guy sitting in the back. He gets, he opens the sliding door to step out and from the back of the front driver's seat all the way to the back of the ambulance are mortar rounds and rockets. I mean, explosives and they're stacked all the way up to the bottom of the windows. And that's the most explosives I've seen in any one place. Yeah. So long story short, I got them into the parking lot. Turned out that they were actually Iraqi soldiers, and I got EOD down there. Ah, yes. Yeah, and EOD comes walking through my tent, and I stopped him. I said, "You're going to want to get your, you're going to want to bring your vehicle out." And they're like, <laughs> "Yeah, yeah, 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 whatever. I'll go look." Five minutes later, they're coming back. Hey, we need to take our vehicle out. I'm like, "Yeah, that's what I told you." That's funny. But <laughs> yeah, so it all turned Man. out good. But I'll tell you what, there was a some close yeah, calls though. Yeah, there was a definite pucker factor there for a little while. And when the guy got out of the van, my guys in the tower had eyes on the, that he could see right in the van. And he said he about crapped his pants as well. So. Yeah, that's intense, man. I, yeah. I have to give everyone credit who could actually stand there and go through all of this sort of thing. Uh, you yeah. Know, I could only imagine what was going through your head. Well, there was a lot going through my head, you know. Like, oh, yeah. uh, oh is this, is this is it? This, is this it? Exactly. <laughs> is this it? Jesus. But no. But yeah, it all turned out. And those guys joked with me. They, they came to the fob several times later on and they would all joke about it. But, but yeah, it was a little stressful. Oh yes. Oh yes. And of course, I did want to get your opinion on yeah. uh, Chad Littlefield. I 
wanted to get your take on the film American Sniper, which was a, a book from Chris Kyle, if I remember yep. correctly. Uh, did I get that right, Chad Littlefield? He was uh, gunned down. I'll be honest, I haven't watched the movie. I'm not, I'm not huge on war movies. Well, I, I kind of felt that you would say that. I was also going to say, <laughs> you don't really watch any of these movies, do you? No, I don't, but they're, Understood. But, you know, you, you're not wrong to think that a soldier would because most soldiers would, but for me, it's just, you know, gotta I, be traumatizing sort of to, to see some of these things. Well, it's just, it's actually more irritating to see oh, Hollywood's irritating. rendition okay. of, you know, like, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the movie that came out and actually got an Academy Award or an Emmy or something here. Uh, God, I'll, I'll have to think about it. But well, Black Hawk Down was also another very popular movie back in 2001, I recall. Which yeah, was a, Black Hawk Down. It was a good movie, I thought. I don't know if you saw that, but. No, I didn't see that one, but the one that really cranked me up. Which one got you? Look. What's that? Which one got you? I'm trying to remember the name of it. I can see it was the guy who played, uh, the guy who played Hawkeye in, in the Avengers. He was in it. Hmm. It was, uh, he was an EOD guy. Oh, okay. You remember which one I'm talking about? Trying to remember. It does sound familiar though. Ah, crap. (laughs) We'll eventually remember. I'll I'll think. Yeah, I'll think of it. Yeah, eventually it'll it'll come. Oh wait, the Hurt Locker. Oh my God, yeah. That's the worst. Got Academy Awards worst rendition of what actually happens in Iraq ever, ever. If you watch that movie and you think for two seconds that that's how things happened in Iraq, you are delusional. I only lasted about thirty minutes watching it until I just. Couldn't watch it anymore, to be completely honest. I, I didn't, I wasn't, uh, wasn't really what I expected, to be honest with you. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, that's, I mean, it's Hollywood's rendition. And then, you know, the movie that came out about the seals, uh, I forget the name of it, but I watched that with a friend of mine because he really wanted to see it. And it was actual seals and they actually helped choreograph the movie. And that movie was spot on on everything, but it got horrible reviews. Whereas you got the Hurt Locker, which was complete and absolute and utter crap and was really just a disservice to the military. And it got rave reviews. Well, well that's the biasness of Hollywood. Yeah, exactly. Which is why I don't watch war movies. You didn't even like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you didn't even like G.I. Jane. Yeah. No, I did see that. I liked yeah. that movie. Yeah. Yeah, that was pretty good. Demi Moore actually did a great job in that one. Yeah. Uh, Saving Private Ryan. I did watch that one. That one. That one was really good. I thought that was very well done. That's a great film. A classic, one that anytime it's on DirecTV, which is what I have, anytime that's on, I have to watch it. Yeah. No, I mean, it is, I would, I would watch it again. It is, it is very good. Oh, yes. And it's, and it's actually, it's actually hard to watch because, you know, people, and, and forgive me if I ramble about this, but it's all right. You know, in the very beginning, when the old guy goes to the grave, I think it's the beginning of the movie when he goes to the grave and he asks his wife to tell him that his, his life has been worth it basically. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of people don't understand that coming home is harder than leaving. And that really is, you know, especially if a soldier comes home without somebody that he left with. Ah, uh, yes. See what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's, and you know, so for me watching that movie, there's a few instances in that movie where just referencing you know, how guys feel about missing home or coming back or, you know, I mean, those, those affect me. It brings it home. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I hear you. I would expect that to happen. What's that? I said, I would expect that to happen. Yeah. And the other, and this is it for war movies, but the only other war movie I saw that I actually really liked was the one Mel Gibson did, uh, We Were Soldiers. Another great film. 
Yeah, that one really brought it brings it home. It's I I enjoy watching it, but it's tough to watch all at the same time. By the way, before we wrap this up, but with the the war movies, uh, Gang yeah. of Four in the chat room, he brings up Full Metal Jacket and Platoon, which were also classics. Yep, they were classics, and uh, I did see Platoon. Uh, no, actually, I think I saw Full Metal Jacket too. That was before I deployed, obviously. Mm-hmm. You know, so things weren't that that difficult for me to watch per se, but. But as I understand it from Vietnam vets, uh, there was a lot of truth in both those movies. Oh, yeah. They had a different side of yeah. issues. Uh, one veteran I know, he does suffer from some of the after effects of some of the mustard gas. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of that. And it's unfortunate that they don't get their, their due, so to speak, you know. It really is. It's very yeah. unfortunate the way a lot of them have been treated, even going back in the past. A lot of yeah. them were treated horribly, and we still see that today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, of course, in some cases they they overcorrect. <laughs> so I haven't really been around too much of that, but I, I'm going to take your word for it. <laughs> well, it doesn't help. I saw some of your guys in the chat room talking about Ambien. Oh boy! And uh, they were joking about Ambien, and uh, <laughs> I'll tell you what they they hand out Ambien to. to to soldiers in a Pez dispenser when they're having sleep problems. And that's really, stuff, that stuff's horrible. I would never, yeah, I would never take it just because, uh, because I knew it's, I knew it's, it's history, so to speak, and, and what was in it. And there was just no way I was going to, you know, I already had sleep problems. I didn't need more problems. Ambient, so. ambient is pretty bad. That stuff, if you take it and, um, you're not anywhere near sleep, that stuff could really mess with your, your, uh, brain's chemistry. And Absolutely. Those highs that it brings you, it's you'll you'll start crying on yeah, ambient. Which is not not helpful to a suicidal soldier. Not at all. That stuff is not good for you. And uh, I I would have to assume it's probably a lot better than what uh, the Nazis were being handed out uh, when they yeah. were taking meth. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. Both horrible. But moving forward, in, in 2018 yeah. and 2019, so far uh, has been littered with uh, plenty of virtual signaling. And uh, this uh, Me Too era, where mm-hmm. any accusation can ruin your career and livelihood, mm-hmm. it's been pretty tremendous to sit back and observe this human behavior watching clashing political ideologies plagued with identity politics. It's pretty entertaining, Michael, even though that's not the right word most people would choose to describe it. But it has been quite interesting to sit back and watch it all, right? Yes, absolutely it has. I mean, you know, it's it's interesting how they want to define society now. You know, they want everybody to be so the same that nobody is any longer unique. Yeah, that's a problem. That's a big problem, yeah. It really is. And I know you talked a little bit about this on your show when mm-hmm. the Gillette commercial came out. Uh, I did touch on the Gillette commercial, yeah. Uh, you know, the Gillette commercial, there was a lot of people, a lot of guys thought, uh, oh, what's the big deal? And then other people thought, oh, it's a huge deal. And really what it comes down to is it doesn't matter what subtleties or non-subtleties there are. I mean, there's, there is straight up an attack on men. And, uh, and it's not just coming from women. You know, a lot of times it comes from, from other men. So you got the whole Me Too movement. You got the whole ma- toxic masculinity movement. You've got, I, I mean, take your pick. There's a million different ways that if you're male, you're wrong. If you're alive and breathing in male, uh, you should just go put yourself in a hole and die. Yeah, the fact that you're even defending men right now, Michael, uh, makes you a target of scrutiny. Yep, and I'm okay with that. Me too. But, uh, (laughs) (laughs) 
But, you know, a lot of people think, well, not a lot. I, I, you know, when people look at the sedated man and they see that, that, uh, my, my business card when I hand it out says helping Christian men return to power. Okay. Now a lot of people take that power the wrong way and I have it on there on purpose. It's a conversation starter. I have a tremendous amount of respect for women and I think that women are, are being hurt by the feminist movement, not being helped. Okay. Agreed. They're making these women who want to live traditionally or, or feel that that is what their, their, their focus should be. Or I, I mean, I can't tell you my, my wife's been a stay at home mom for years and she has gotten flack for it. Oh yes. You I know? would I could imagine that. And yeah. Mm-hmm. By the way, I just wanted to quickly say the, the Me Too yeah. movement and the various individuals who have lied about their experiences have really messed up what I believe to be something that attended, that had intentions of being positive. And it didn't take long before uh, various feminists out there to get involved with this and turn it into something it, it was not intended to be. That's just my take on it. I'm not quite sure if that's accurate or not, but that's what it, no, what it I, seems like I to would me. Agree. Yeah, we, we see this toxic femininity. Yeah, there you go. That's that's what it is. And it hasn't really been said much, but that's exactly what this is. And it's something that continues to plague us and go in and it goes over the general public's head. And I and I receive plenty of backlash from the soccer moms out there who have conflicting ideologies. And I understand those few individuals out there who feel that way and they know exactly why they do. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's. That's this is where the whole, you know, organic parenting thing is coming from, too, you know, where you just let your kids be just let them grow into who they are. And uh, so you've got men who are just supposed to not be aggressive, not show aggression, just let their child blossom. And then the moms are supposed to do the same. Just let your child blossom. That's bull crap. All right. Moms and dads are there for a reason. They're like like offices uh, or like positions in an office. You know, when you go to a business and you are not happy with the service, who do you want to talk to? You want to talk to the boss. Right. Nobody has an issue with that. Nobody even thinks twice about it. But may make a suggestion that somebody, that two people are in charge, and one of those people should have the last say within a household, and people's heads will explode. Okay? It's the same thing. Men and women that are moms and dads and husbands and wives, obviously, it's okay for them to discipline within their own homes. It's okay for them to decide together on things they need to do. And it's okay for one of them to have the last say so long as the other one trusts, trusts enough to let that happen. So, so they want the natural order of things. And I'm not saying that the natural order is that men are dictators and women are subservient. That sure. is not it at all. Mm-hmm. Scripturally, scripturally speaking, this is my rant. Sorry. That's okay. Don't worry. We like rants here. We like rants. <laughs> yes. Scripturally speaking, scripture calls women to be strong leaders in the house and it calls them to be entrepreneurs in the marketplace. And a lot of people don't realize that. Mm-hmm. Women are elevated in the New Testament. They're not subservient. All right. Now, yes, in scripture, it does say that the man is the head of the house as Christ is the head of the church. But it also says it also talks about how Christ gave himself up for his bride and every man should be willing to do the same. So the man's job within the realm of scripture is to be the servant leader all right where he leads through his service to his family where he sacrifices everything for them that is his job he's to make sure they're fed he's to make sure that these things are taken care of and 
and the trust between the the husband and wife is is immeasurable because in Proverbs it says that the heart of her husband trusts in her, which means that she is being a trustworthy woman. He trusts that she can dictate and take care of the house without him standing there 24-7. She's not subservient. She's a partner. But like every business, somebody has to have the last say if something can't be agreed upon. But normally things are agreed upon. It's not a big deal. Yes, and lots of women nowadays are reaching higher levels than men in the workplace for the most part. Lots of them are a lot more educated than most of their counterparts. Yep. Lots of them uh, outweigh men in college. That's just, those are just uh, facts. Yeah, the women who complain about uh, unequal uh, pay and unequal positions within companies Really, they just want to whine. I'm sorry. That's just what they want to do. And the reason is, is because any woman or any man, for that matter, who is worth their grit, who is not getting paid what they should or getting promoted where they feel they should, should be moving on, should be going where they can get it or should be starting their own thing. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And if you're and if you're sitting in a position where you're just complaining about how it's unequal, you're part of the problem. You're not part of the solution. Every workplace I've ever been that had women in, in them. They have always been treated well, and I've seen a lot of them get ahead more than than the guys, in my, in my opinion. No, I've seen and that. What too. You know, it's fake, fake yeah. news wants you to believe otherwise. It, it, a lot of workplaces, <laughs> yeah, a lot of workplaces I've seen, women are still getting ahead. It's yeah, not exactly absolutely. what what the media says, but I've seen it for the longest time. Every every little mediocre job I ever had, I always saw a woman get promoted somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. I never got anyway. angry at that. It never bothered no. me. If they're qualified, they're qualified. What's the big deal? Exactly. So yeah. it, it's, not, it's not a problem to me, but uh, I know there's lots of people on both sides of the coin here that make up these arguments for it, and it's just uh, rather silly because that's not reality. No, it's not reality. And that's where we go back to uh, the media. <laughs> the propaganda. Right. That's a word you don't, that's a word you don't hear propaganda, much Propaganda, exactly, and it's true, and... Uh, I'm just a bit concerned with where all of these things are headed, Michael. A, a new paradigm shift is on the horizon, and I worry about the younger and impressionable youth out there who have been subjected to a lot of unrealistic expectations. Yeah. No, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's But once again, you go back to if you remove masculinity, men are taking a step back because they're being told it's wrong. Okay. Now, as, as a result, women are having to step into a role they shouldn't have to step into. And so now you've got some women who are overbearing and then, and then comes the organic parenting where you just let the kid flow and you just let them, you know, figure it out and you don't really punish them and they don't learn jack. Okay. They don't learn life skills. They don't learn what it means to earn something. They don't mean they don't understand consequence and that is part of the reason I believe for such a high suicide rate amongst that age group, especially within the military, because they haven't had adequate life skills. You know, if everything's handed to them, then suicide looks like an easy out. Yeah. And suicide is the new black. Lots of yeah. people are doing it nowadays. Yeah. Now it's like a game. Yeah. It's, it's incredible to see that so many people taking their own lives and uh, that that's just always so weird to read that someone went through the whole process of trying to kill themselves and they went through it all and they did it successfully. Yeah. Yeah. It blows my mind really. And going back to what we're, we're just talking about though, in terms of women uh, tagging back to all of that, what we mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, 
Uh, now different articles have surfaced in terms of women uh, mentoring men. Once again, I yep. don't find that to be a good idea, quite frankly. Uh, no, in fact, I did a podcast on why women should never mentor men. Oh, did but, you? Uh, yeah, I did. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, Very good. So, okay, so, okay, so everything that I say is going to have a scriptural base. It's going to have a religious base. So as far as scripture goes, it's, there are two roles. The woman has an absolutely vital role and the man has an absolutely vital role. Okay. Absolutely. So in that, men cannot tell women how to be moms or wives and women cannot tell men how to be husbands or, or fathers. Okay. They can make suggestions to each other. They can say, Hey, I see this, but you know, and they can discuss it, but they can't mentor each other that way. That's just something we have to learn. That's something we do as a team as we go. So for, for a woman to mentor a man, that would mean that he has basically, well, for lack of a better term, he's handed in his man card. He said, okay, I can't do this. I need the woman to tell me, <clears throat> which gives you an indication of how weak the man has become. And some men are like that. Some men prefer yes. to be the stay-home-at-dad type. Yeah, because it's easy, quite honestly. And they would know, tell you, mm-hmm. they would tell you something else, but to be perfectly honest, it's easy. Do you, do you find that to be something negative? A man wanting to take on that role while the woman goes and becomes the provider? Oh, you want to get me in trouble? No, not at all. No, this is just a place for, yeah, I hear you, but <laughs> I just want everyone to know that this is a place for open discussion and I'd never be afraid to disagree or agree with anything that I say or callers. Oh, no. It's it's all good. No, I'm kidding. Mm-hmm. My anybody who's listened to my podcast knows I'm very direct and I don't pull any punches. Love that. So so yeah, it is a problem. I mean, you know, I do know people who claim to be Christian where the guy is staying home and the woman is working. Now, in some cases, you've got a guy with a medical problem and he can't physically work. Right. Okay. And so the woman goes to work. However, this goes back to an earlier conversation I had where you won't find mediocre Christians in Scripture. So if there are no mediocre Christians in Scripture, that means that they the that they had a, a, a cause, that they had a passion, and that they got stuff done regardless of limiting conditions. So if a guy can't physically work anymore, why is he not learning a new Internet skill or mm, a new, new trade. work from home, yeah. a new trade, a new work from home skill, go back to school? I don't give a crap what it is. Why is he settling to stay at home with the kids and okay with his wife going out? Because it, it creates an imbalance. It does, I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's there's nothing wrong with women being moms and and men being dads. There's, you know... Women can't be moms. They're not physically built or not can't be dads. They're not physically built for it, nor can dads be moms. They're not physically built for it, nor are either one of us wired for those jobs. Yeah. You know, going back to moms and dads and, and these relationships, especially with the single parent household, I mm-hmm. definitely do recall being back in elementary school, playing with the other kids. I always knew which kid was raised by a single mother. Mm hmm. They, I always knew. It's the weirdest thing because it's something that growing up, I didn't, you don't have this realization growing up. You don't understand a lot of things. But yeah. in, in my head, even back then, even being a little boy, I always knew the kids who didn't have a father because they always had these, and this might get me in trouble, but they <laughs> always had these feminine traits. You couldn't yes. rough house with them. 
you couldn't you couldn't really do a lot of the same things you could with other boys. And they were more whiny. More exactly. Yes. It's not now, it's I, not PC to say that, but no. this is a non PC place. <laughs> exactly. So you know, I I have a tremendous amount of respect for single moms who Same end up here. in a bad position, right? And and I I wouldn't point fingers and say you're a bad person by any any stretch, right? I mean, this is this is about you know observation. Unfor- yeah, unfortunately, I mean, divorce is rampant. It's fifty percent now. Oh yes, very high. You've got you've got uh, originally it was mostly men leaving their wives, but now I see as many wives leaving their husbands and leaving their kids, and so you've got. I think a pretty even mix anymore of single dads and single moms. In fact, one of my best friends who is also a, a part-time soldier, he has three girls and he's a single dad. Ooh. And, and he struggles, but he'll be the first to tell you, I can't teach them how to be girls or women. And so he exactly. really relies, yeah. he really relies on the women close in his life to mm-hmm. help him do that. That's a tough gig, man. Yeah, exactly. Being, and it's equally mm-hmm. tough for the women. Being a guy raising all girls, that is difficult. Even, even so for a woman having to raise just all boys too. Yeah, exactly. I mean, my wife and I, we had five boys. Good lord. Yeah, and she homeschooled. So, yeah. So, so, you know, it's, it's nothing against women. It's just, they're just not built to raise a boy by themselves. I mean, there's a lot of women that are like, I don't need a man and, you know, I can raise this kid to be a good man. Okay. Uh, only so far. Sorry. It, It goes back to nature. Yeah, only so far. You can only do so much. I could not raise a girl by myself to be a full-fledged woman without the help of other women that I trusted. I just, I, and I wouldn't, ex- I wouldn't try to. Yes. So your friend tells you about this, and he expresses how difficult it is, and it's good Absolutely. that that he brings in uh, women that he that women that are strong, good women. Right. Exactly. Yeah, they need those role models. Exactly. And, and boys really need the male role model. They need a male role model too. They need a male role model. You know, I mean, I mean, people can argue this. Like I said, it, it absolutely baffles me why this is an issue. Because what? Women want to be men? Why? Why would you want to be a man? I don't want to be a woman. I don't know any men that want to be women. Of course, nowadays, you know, you got all this gender confusion. You know, you know what's crazy, Michael? I think, just, I just think to, that's produced as well. What, what's crazy, Michael, just to pause you on that thought. Yeah, sorry. No, it's okay. I just wanted to quickly tag okay. on to what we're talking about here that, uh, 27 of the deadliest mass shooters, 26 of them were fatherless. Yeah, shocker. It should not shock anyone. And exactly. of course, all these kids also under different medication. Mm-hmm. So it just goes back to what we're talking about. We're not even talking about how many of them were Democrat or Republican. But that's, a, <laughs> that's a total side note. Mm. It is. But <laughs> since we are on the subject of, of children, though, yep. uh, they're, they're here in, uh, I believe it's Orange County, if I recall correctly, seeing the article. Uh, now California is about to implement a new abortion and homosexuality promoting sex education lessons. Oh, my God. And the district says parents can pull kids. From it, hmm. that doesn't surprise me. California is kind of the uh, the front runner in those things. Yeah, I'm in California, and I fully am aware of a lot of these things that are going on in, in the classrooms, and a lot of parents aren't even fully aware of it. Uh, these yeah. kids, really, it's it, again, it, it goes back to kids just being kids. Nowadays, they're they're having all these really adult things getting pushed onto them. Yep. These kids shouldn't be worried or even thinking about uh if I identify with being a girl or a boy. 
Yeah, I mean, like, uh, you know, four and five year olds, what do they know? Well, they know they like cookies. Exactly. So don't, don't, don't <laughs> tell me that they know whether they want to be a boy or a girl, if you know, and that you're going to just dress them accordingly. You That's just, abuse. You just that complicate, abuse. you complicate natural order. Yeah. And yeah. it's, it's really sad to see. Uh huh. And angering too. I mean, you know, and, and, but there's no, there's no real, I don't want to say it. There is no real value of life anymore. They're not teaching kids that there's a value of life. They teach kids that you can have uh basically full term abortions now and that life is subjective it's what you think it is right and you know and, for the record uh, michael i'm not against the homosexuals or the trannies out there lots yeah. of those people actually listen to the show and right. i still love them i don't i don't care what they're doing in their personal lives but when it comes to kids and this issue it, it just has me perturbed I, I just don't see how that makes any sort of logical sense i don't see the reasoning behind those sort of decisions to uh, place on a kid and to implement these sort of adult decisions and yeah, no, bring them totally up to them agree. at such an early age. I mean, that's, that's crazy. Like I said, they know what kind of cookies they like. That's about <laughs> all they know at that age. You know, I joke with my sons because, you know, my sons are adults now and, uh, they'll say something and I'll look at him and I'll say, well, where do you think you learned that? Kids, <laughs> that's yeah. Kids. Yeah. Kids know exactly what their parents tell them to know. Correct. So oh, this organic home. parenting thing is just bullcrap. Yeah, it, it's it's unusual to see. Yeah, and let me let me just clarify one thing as well. Go ahead. Uh, I don't hate homosexuals, and of I don't hate not. transgenders. Yeah. A lot of people think that because of who I am and what I'm pushing, that I that you I autom- hate them. Yeah, yeah, I don't hate them. Mm-hmm. You know, I got I think I think there's been so much polarization. This is also part of what I do with the sedated man. There is so much polarization now that people can't have a conversation about things they disagree on without wanting to stab each other by the time it's done. And exactly. I really want to bring forth a, a a place where people can have passionate conversations and disagreements and still leave the table friends. Exactly. And that's something that we, well, during the whole election, we saw people divided. Yeah. Insanely. People lost friends. They lost family, uh, members mm-hmm. who they were once close to. Simply because of opposing political ideologies. Yep. That should not happen. No. You shouldn't hate someone personally because they voted for X, Y, and Z. No, I totally agree. Yeah, it just makes no sense. No, it's baffling. Yeah, but it is interesting to see that that sort of behavior, that psychological mindset that some individuals do carry with them. And, again, I mentioned this earlier. I'm not – well, you were listening to the first gentleman before you, correct? Uh, yeah, I caught the tail end of it, yep. Yeah, it's, I mentioned some of this, uh, uh, to him as well. Um, and kind of funny actually, right when things were starting, I actually had another Michael who was talking to me on another line and I forgot to hit mute on, on that channel. So I was calling out for him while <laughs> I had the other guest on there baffled wondering why I was calling out to Michael. Yeah, I was gonna say. I wonder if uh, Michael Baker was wondering if I was calling out to him. No. Okay, good. You didn't catch that. It was kind no, of, I didn't catch that. It was kind of embarrassing. I'm talking into the ether. It's all good. Okay, cool. Yes, but uh, going back to what we we're just talking about here. Oh man, I almost feel like I'm getting lost in my thoughts here. But uh, yeah, just just to add on to the whole. Uh, people assuming just because you take the stance that you automatically, uh, despise 
uh, homosexuals and the whole transgender thing. Yeah. Uh, people just automatically assume that for whatever reason. And I think a lot of, a lot of that has to do with the media going back to that, the, the propaganda machine. No, I would totally agree. I mean, you know, my, my stance, my convictions are not popular, but, but all of the, all of the things that have been laid out before, you know, about people like me who believe things like me sure. have been cranked out by the media machine that, that we're evil, that I am the enemy, you know, so. Which you're not. No. I truly no, don't I'm, think so. Yeah, it's, it's, it's okay to have passion and conviction about things. It's okay to disagree. It's okay to say, no, I absolutely disagree with how you're living your life, but I don't hate you as a person. Right. You know, that, that all goes back to what I was saying about the whole divide, the whole division amongst all of us now. Yeah, exactly. And Very I agree. It's, it's unfortunate. It is very unfortunate. I'm not quite sure again where this will lead us. You can't really, a, you can't really tell nowadays who's being genuine and not. Yeah. Terrible time. Yeah. Yes, sir. But and there's hope. You think there's hope? Oh, I think there is. Yeah. I, I wouldn't do what I did or I wouldn't do what I do with a sedated man if I, if I didn't. That's true. And tell people where they could find the sedated man, by the way. Well, when I record The Sedated Man, I go live on uh, Instagram, Facebook, and I record for a YouTube channel as well. So if you look up The Sedated Man on any of those platforms, you can find it. And then my main platform for podcasting is Anchor, but you can find The Sedated Man on any on any podcasting platform pretty much out there. Very good. Very good. And uh, I do have some other things I do want to get into here with you, if, if you don't mind. Yeah. No, absolutely. Let's go. Cool. Okay, cool. Very, very good. And, and on a side note, uh, are there any shows that you listen to, Michael, on a on a regular basis, if there is any? Uh, yeah, actually. In fact, I had them listed here. I uh, I listen to uh, of course I li- I listen to Brendan Bouchard just because I like him. Oh, cool. Okay. But uh, I also listen to Warriors and Wild Men, which is uh, a somewhat off color Christian podcast. But I think the guys are right on the money with their message. Yeah, I, I haven't then, heard of that one. Yeah, and then of course I listen to you. Ah, I will. Thank you so much. <laughs> You're very welcome. I do appreciate that. Yep. I'm always surprised about who actually listens to the program. Oh yeah, why is that? Oh well, for instance, you know the the program it covers all sorts of crazy topics, and sometimes there is some very dark and dry humor. Yeah. And well, some people enjoy that, and I'm always baffled by those who listen who are in the older demographic and. Uh, one of those being a judge in New Mexico. Oh, really? Yeah, and I always think, why would you listen to my show? It's insane. <laughs> but that's why well, he like listens. I, it, he likes it. He likes the entertainment value and some of the new yeah. segments we hit here. Well, you don't have to believe everything that's coming across for it to be entertaining. Yeah. True, true. Yeah. Very true. And um speaking of news, I did want to ask you about Chris Christie. What about him? The fine Chris Christie. Uh, New Jersey's own Chris Christie, who I said will never be the president of the United States. Is he running again? I don't think so. <laughs> he <laughs> would be a right. fool to run again if he, if he does. Yeah. But I would agree. Most people from New Jersey, well, anyone out of New Jersey, they'll, they won't be the president. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> That's going <laughs> to well, give me some I mean, heat, but <laughs> I'm just I, being honest. I under- no, I understand why you say that. I don't necessarily disagree. <laughs> I don't think there's horrible people in New Jersey, but you know, I don't know. I don't think there's horrible people, but most people from New Jersey seem to shoot themselves in the foot politically. Yeah. 
Well, I don't think anybody out of Montana is going to be president anytime soon either. And that's the state, that's the state I live in. Yeah, well, you're probably right. Yeah, exactly. And now, of course, speaking of Chris Christie, he had lots of things to say about Michael Cohen. He's been going around talking about that. And Michael Cohen, another guy who's been making the waves as well. I have a bit of a news clip here. If, if you are down with me to play it. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's play that. Let's see. Oh, yes. I have one here where he talks about Roger Stone. I'm not quite sure if you heard that audio clip, or, uh, if you heard that, yes or no? No, I did not. Okay, let's play that. Let's play that first. Mm-hmm. Mr. Stone told Mr. Trump that he had just gotten off the phone with Julian Assange, and that Mr. Assange told Mr. Stone that within a couple of days, there would be a massive dump of emails that would damage Hillary Clinton's campaign. How can we corrob- corroborate what you are saying? I don't know, but I suspect that the special counsel's office and other um, government agencies have the information that you're seeking. Yeah, for those that don't know, that was <laughs> Mr. Cohen there who has been sentenced to three years in prison for uh-huh. those that haven't been paying attention. Uh, what do you make of those comments? I think it's interesting that he threw stuff out there that uh, he said, I don't know. I don't know how you can how you can prove that, but I'm sure it's out there somewhere. Now, that is pretty funny. I mean, okay, so so why don't you have it? How, why are you bringing it up if it's if you can't prove it? If you can't verify it, are you are you hoping we'll have sympathy or? But but, but wasn't Michael yeah. Cohen supposed to be a good guy? They're all supposed to be good guys at one point or another, aren't they? That's what I so, learned. Well, when it comes to money, though, you know, everyone yeah. is a good guy until that that income just goes away. Exactly. And I haven't followed Michael Cohen that close so I, I i haven't followed him close enough to have an opinion on whether he's a good guy or a bad guy but but really a statement like that is just you're trying to buy time well it goes a little bit further uh here's a, here's another clip okay go for it shame that i chose to take part in concealing mr trump's illicit acts rather than listening to my own conscience i am ashamed because i know what mr trump is oh he is a racist he is a con man and he is a cheat. A racist and a con man and a cheat. Is this where he asked me what I think about Trump? No, this is where I ask, where <laughs> I ask you um, what your take is on what Cohen just said there. Uh, well, okay, so he's in a corner. He's he's looking for sympathy. All right, obviously he went to, went to jail. So I think he's going to say whatever he can to try to salvage whatever is left of any reputation or character he, he might have had with anybody because it's really easy to throw stones at the president because that's what everybody's doing you know so i think he was i think he was still looking for sympathy i think he was still trying to find whatever he could get at that point pretty interesting stuff yeah pretty wild stuff yeah and of i course, mean is it true is mm-hmm. it true well he, he still had nothing there outside of his outside of a confession but a confession from a guy who had no proof of anything yeah, we don't know. No, we don't know. We don't know. We weren't there. Nope. But of course, I wasn't there when the Titanic sank, but I know that it, you know, know that yeah, it went down. Oh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, by the way, we do have a call here. Let's take a call. Awesome. That's always fun, right? Taking a little call. Oh, yeah. Hell yes. Let's take that call. Um, caller, you are live on the air. What's up? Oh, caller. Yeah, I don't know about the Chris Christie thing. I think he's actually just kind of going off the script. Oh yes, you're talking. You're 
you're calling about Chris Christie. But yeah, you were just on that. Yeah, yeah. Chris Christie, um, another man who, like I just said, he will never be the president. No, he probably just wants to be important so he doesn't get arrested for the um, tunnel. He's been go. he's been out there a lot though lately, making the yeah. rounds there. Well, he's trying some people, to. Some people like attention. That's what Chris Christie seems to be doing here. He's really been <laughs> yeah. well, been uh, you know talking to all sorts of different media personnel uh, personalities and uh, media platforms. He was on uh, CNN there, and he said Trump lied about things he didn't need to lie about. Well, who cares? So, you know, Chris Christie's out there doing his thing. And again, yeah. I have to be honest with all of you. I don't support any political party. I, I'm just pretty bipartisan. These, these are all just characters. It, it almost seems that way. And I said that yeah, early yeah. on about the Trump administration having more lineup changes than a major league baseball team. And <laughs> I don't know if that's because it's hard to find good work these days or just some of these individuals are just not who they claim to be. And my only thing with Trump was his alleged ties to Jeffrey Epstein and, of course, his involvement and his ongoing relationship with those uh, in Goldman Sachs. That's another mm-hmm. thing that really had me perturbed in his whole uh, presidency, and it's still something that does bother me. I've always been honest Mike? about that. Uh, go ahead, caller. Uh, yeah, is your um, guest still on? Yeah, he's here. Go ahead if you have a question yeah, for him. Yeah, yeah. How how is Montana? Cold, very cold. Uh, we've gotten we've gotten yeah, well, a ton yeah, of snow yeah. So last you, week. You still half, got the so. yeah, oh yeah, still so, so like under freezing all the time. Uh, well, right now it's supposed to get to thirty three below tonight, and I think when I came in here to do this, it was about nine below. Damn. Yep. Yep. Exactly. I, I did a job up there uh, in Kalispell, <laughs> yeah. uh, doing a train job up through White uh, Whitefish. Yeah. Yeah, that was the funnest time in the world. What, what time of the year? The local, I was in fall, so oh, I, I okay, escaped why. the actual har- harsh that you're dealing with right now. Yeah, but the locals up there were the best. Oh yeah, there's a lot of good. Well, Montana only has a million people in the state. Well, yeah. Yep. I'm from Idaho, so we're growing because all the Californians are moving in. Yeah, some of those bumps. So, uh, so I hear you. Yeah, yeah, and then from there, the uh, the locals up there, hell. Hanging out with the locals and like doing the VFW and whatnot is great. Yeah, no, they have a really strong VFW and, Amer- and American Legion here in the state. Exactly, and not here. You never see that here. It's oh, amazing. Really? Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, well, no, that's true. Because I saw that there, and then I see this here. I can't mm-hmm. even possibly believe that Idaho does not have a far, far better setup. Huh? Well, maybe that's something you should yeah. get in and change. Yeah, they're trying to. Yeah. And caller, anyway, caller, where where are you at, by the way? In Boise. In Boise, okay. Oh yeah, I've spent yeah. a lot of time in Boise. Very nice. Yeah, it's an okay place. It's yep. kind of growing. It's go, growing with uh, Californians moving in, but it's okay. Yep. No, mm-hmm. I like it. I've I've been going. I went there quite a few times because my unit was attached to the one sixteenth. So. Yeah. Oh, because the um oh the National Guard. Yep. 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 Very nice. My son my son my son's in the army. Does he like it? He's kind of liking it. <laughs> well, good then. He probably needs some of it. Yeah, I, it's plus and a minus, and I have to talk him through a few things once in a while on my command schedules. Yeah. But it's okay. I, good. I, it's my youngest son, and so he's kind of like doing his own thing. That's awesome. Yeah, he's, yeah I know. It's just kind of like how you walk through life. Yep, exactly. <laughs> they all need it. 
All right. So anyway, what do you want to do on this uh, political thing there, Mike? The uh, what do you mean? Chris Christie thing and what else? Oh, Chris Christie. Uh, nothing. Yeah. I, I was just uh, making a conversation about the ongoing drama with Trump and the whole alleged Russian probe. That's no, that's never going to end. Popular. No, it's not. No. He was actually recently, he was uh, during a rally. I believe he said the whole targeting of him was BS. Yeah, did. exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't uh-huh. disagree with that. Yeah. Yeah, what, and what then you, also, we, we have not had a president, we have not had a president yet that's been a peace president. Like, other than who? What, what do you mean? There's never been a peace president. Mm-hmm. Oh, one yeah, that didn't actually, like, on. let's say, um, force the Taliban to go ahead and, like, have peace. Ah. Oh, okay. Then also pull everybody out of Syria and then have peace there and cause a, a reparations, well, not reparations, but just Make sure that everything's okay. Yeah. Do the North Korea at the same time. Ah, yes, the North Korea, uh, the uh, summit there. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, see, I don't know. There's a whole bunch of talk on that. And then uh, Jim Stone, do you know who that is? You mean Roger Stone? No, Jim Stone. Jim Stone. No, I don't. Yeah, yeah, you should look at his site once in a while. Um, yeah, he has a offhand NSA idea of what's going on. Ah, okay. But anyway, yeah, I, I can send you the link if you want. Sure. But anyway, the, uh, the, oh, so right as soon as all of this stuff like fires up mm-hmm. with, with peace process going on with Afghanistan, Syria, and North Korea, mm-hmm. lo and behold, we have India and, um, oh, Pakistan. Pakistan going at it. Yeah, that's another yep. ongoing conflict that does have me a bit worried, uh, not, well, not completely worried, but slightly. It's, it's interesting to see that going on and seeing who jumps on board with that. Yeah. Cause you know, another uh, country wants no, to get I, in that. No, I don't, no, no. I think actually the talks that are going on right now is to not get on board. Well, that's what I would suggest not to do. Yeah. Cause everybody's been predicting a regional war for a long time. Yeah. And nobody wants it. China does not want this, nor does Russia. China and Russia. Gonna make, yes, uh, yeah. China and Russia are the two superpowers that we definitely have to keep an eye on, especially China and their. Well, yeah, yeah, that, that's far, far, far more serious on the hacking operation. Lots of AI out there, and China being in the forefront of all this technological warfare that they will be introducing. No, soon. China does not have AI. You don't think so? Nope. You don't think they have AI? No, they they have AI, but it's basically I don't know ten years back. No, I, I wouldn't say I that. Have no doubt they probably stole whatever we have. They have some pretty <laughs> powerful stuff, my friend. Yeah. Yep. And this comes from lots of my knowledge of of China's capabilities comes from Lieutenant Colonel Robert McGinnis, who I believe was just on Fox oh. News talking about this just yesterday, I think. So he does brief me. On some of these issues going on out there, are you are you familiar with Lieutenant Colonel, by the way, Michael? Oh, yep. Yeah. Uh, me? Yeah, Lieutenant Colonel Magnus. Uh, I know the name. I'm not super familiar with him himself. They say Magnus. I meant McGinnis. But yeah, he's been a yeah, guest once here once again. Yeah, the mm-hmm. name, but not him. Yeah, Lieutenant Colonel McGinnis. He's been a guest here before. I don't know why I called him Magnus for, but <laughs> no, I think I heard him on your show. Yeah, he he's. Very, very um, intelligent and um, 
very much well connected uh, to the Pentagon still. Yeah, no, it sounded like it, as I recall. Yeah, he's uh, he's a uh, pretty intimidating, slightly. Oh, is he? Kinda. <laughs> I feel like he's. I feel like he's going to make where me. Where he was by accident. That's true. I feel like he's just going to make me do push-ups all of a sudden. Not sure yeah. why. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! That's hell. Yeah, he. I just feel like he's like a drone instructor almost. Yeah. Well, like I said, oh. he didn't get where he was by accident. Yeah, I really do like him though. He definitely has a very good, uh, powerful aura around him. Definitely an alpha male. Yeah, I would agree. He's very alpha and. Definitely appreciate him being on the program. And, uh, caller, anything else? Did you want to ask Michael anything or myself? No, you're good. You're and good. also, okay. uh, thank you on the last guest, the last guest you had before. Yeah, Bernie Taylor. Yeah. And also, uh, all you have to do is listen to the, uh, last Bernie Taylor interview he did with that guy from Northern California. Mm-hmm. And I swear on a stack of Bibles, um, that you hands down. Handled Bernie Taylor far better than that idiot. Oh my. Yes. You just have to listen to it halfway. That's all you have to get. He did that bad. It's quite hilarious. Oh, it's that bad. Ooh. Seriously. If you're going to actually pull somebody in that's a guest, you have to know at least something. Well, you have to be, you have to know something and be interested. Yeah, not that you actually travel internationally and you have an ankle biter dog that you walk on a regular basis to talk <laughs> about moon cycles. Oh. This is not a good thing. But yeah. but if, if you listen to that in retrospect to what you just did and how how you know how to do these things, you just have to do it just once and you'll know. Well, it's definitely not my first rodeo, that's for sure. Exactly. <laughs> so anyway, yes. Well, I have I, a great Saturday evening you yeah, too thank and you, man. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much, man from Montana. (laughs) Thank you. Amazing. Yeah, thank you for the call, my friend. Always. Yeah, don't be shy. Call in whenever you'd like. It's all good. Well, no, I'll just rant on. That's okay. Again, we like rants here. And also, I'm sorry for pissing off your, um, oh, the online people. Ah, don't worry. They they get mad. They get triggered over anything. It's okay. No, it's okay. I love it. I, I like that. Yeah, yeah, always. Keep Keep triggering people. It's all good. No, Adele camps, clamps, just, just subconscious goes crazy. It does. Have a good evening, guys. Yep. You yep. too. Thanks. Mahalo. And there he goes. A great call that was. Do appreciate those calls. Isn't that fun? It is. I always tell people that, uh, if you're irritated at what I'm saying, at least I know you're listening. Exactly. <laughs> it's always good to step on a few toes, Michael. Oh, yeah. It really is. It really, really is. And going back to some of the things that we were discussing earlier, I uh, yeah. just got this random thing in my head about your opinion on these teachers nowadays who are always getting in trouble with their students now. Lots of teachers now sexually assaulting uh, very underage boys all of a sudden. And these are women yep. that are doing it. And a lot of times, to be completely honest with you, one of the last ones that just happened was uh, this woman by the name of Brittany Zamora, 27. And to be honest with you, I'm looking at a screenshot of her right now, and she's not a bad-looking woman yeah, at all. She's actually a very good-looking woman, and I believe she was even or still is married, and she had this relationship with a 13-year-old boy. Yep. Good Lord. 
Yeah, you got to wonder what the heck they're thinking. Why? Why is well, this so problematic, though? Why? Why are we seeing so much of this? That's kind of my question for you and anyone out there, really. Why is this such a? Why is this a thing? Why is this the new normal all of a sudden? Well, for one, you got to wonder how much it was happening before it started getting reported all the time. Right. But I mean, you know, it goes back to they keep they keep moving boundaries. You know, I mean, so if you have a kid in a public school system and you're not happy with what the teacher's doing, uh, do you have a right to tell the teacher to change it? Well, not typically. So you've got these kids that are there. The school system is telling them if there's problems at home, you need to tell us. So they're basically degrading the home and they're telling them that mom and dad are subjective to the school system. And so so the the teachers then put themselves in a position of authority in the fact that if a teacher rats on a parent, then suddenly the kid is out of the house because family services will take the kid out of the house before they have any proof that anything's happened. And if you think otherwise, mm-hmm. you're delusional. So, and I don't mean you, Michael, I just I know. mean in general. <laughs> I, I can be but, a little bit. <laughs> just a little bit. We all, yeah, we all can. So... So then you've got all these boundaries that are now moved. Instead of a parent-teacher relationship, now it's, or instead of a, I'm sorry, a teacher-student relationship, now it's a, it's a guardian-student relationship. Uh, okay. That's how they're, and they're, they're <laughs> there to protect them from the parents. I see. Because the parents, when the kid is in school, have very little say, you know, but parents will, who is it that they point the finger at first? If their kid's not learning something, it's it's the teacher. Yep. So there's this big, ugly circle of things going on. But ultimately, the school system will back the teacher typically before they'll back a parent. So unless it's uh, unless it's something like this, and then of course they have to they have to back the parent. So so you've got all these boundaries that have been removed. You've got all these boundaries that have been moved, and it's no wonder that there's all this stuff going on because you've got you've got. Once again, back to the 50% divorce rate, there's a reason divorce is happening. Things aren't good at home. There's a whole era of sexless marriage going on. And now you've got a woman who's looking for attention who spends all these time, all this time with her students. And at 13, boys change and they don't always look like boys anymore. Right. And by the way, Michael, I'm not sure if you're in the chat room, but I actually put up a photo of the teacher and a screenshot of what she was telling this boy. This 13-year-old boy, and it gets pretty explicit. Oh, does it? It does, really. It, it starts yeah. off with thinking, it, what, what, what you're doing, thinking about your sexy self. Oh, baby, yep. I wish you were with me. I mean, wow, 13 years yeah. old. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, it goes right back to it. You know, you've got all these move boundaries. Teachers aren't just teachers anymore; they're guardians. You got boys that are changing right around that age. I mean, when I was 12 years old, I shot to six foot. Oh, and I had, a, fast. I had a, I hit puberty early and I had a mustache and almost a full beard. That was at 12. But were you, <clears throat> but were you thinking of knocking out of the park with a teacher? Uh, unfortunately, I think every, I think every boy has a teacher they have a crush on coming up through school. Oh, well, when I was that age, all my teachers were not looking like this one here. Uh, no, I had a couple of teachers that were pretty, pretty young. Did you? Well, yeah. I did not in their, have in their, that in their mid 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 twenties. <laughs> I didn't have that sort of experience. I just had just <laughs> the most awful teachers you could think of. But yeah. it's funny because it was always the PE teachers that were always the good looking ones when I was in school. Yeah, that happened too. But I never ever thought about hitting on any of them. Yeah, no. I mean that's not something that goes through your mind. And of course the this is from Arizona. The Arizona parents seek uh, 2.5 million from school after a teacher accused of molesting the boy. To me, it yeah. sounds like the parents definitely want to get that payday. 
Uh, yeah, you think? Oh yeah. That's a good, that's a, what, dif- what difference tremendous. is it going to make? I mean, is the boy traumatized? Not at all. No. I'm <laughs> reading, I'm looking at this text, <laughs> Michael. To me, there is nothing traumatized about, uh, nothing in his head that's traumatized about what conversation is going on and what it's going to lead to. It seems to me like he's pretty much in control. Yeah, exactly. And no. he was in control when that happened. Well, he was in control to a point. I would almost guarantee that she probably instituted it. But anymore, because kids are so, are, because organic parenting has become so prevalent, boys and girls, they take, they take liberties that they wouldn't have taken 50 years ago. I agree. It's just yeah, so creepy to see this. Yeah. No, I agree. Wow, man. It's, and apparently there was another boy involved that he was sort of like the lookout for them to oh, really? do their business in the classroom as well. Yeah. Good but Lord. But yeah, I, I agree it's become a problem. It it really has. It, it really has. It's almost like I said, the new normal where you see so much of this. And of course, the their male counterparts, there's been plenty of cases where, where guys do this sort of thing too. Yeah. But I don't think they were being sued for $2.5 million. No, no. I would agree the parents are definitely looking for a payday. <laughs> That's a pretty substantial payday. Yeah, because what's it really going to pay for? Uh, well, just for their, their bills, really, and their car, and yeah, exactly. It's just it's not going to be one of those things. I highly doubt it'll be anything that has to do with the kid or his college intuition. Yeah, there you go. He ain't going to college. <laughs> <laughs> and no. now he has a, a pretty tremendous story to tell now. Yeah, exactly. And you know he's not going to tell it as a traumatized teen. Nope. Nope. Oh, man. Interesting yeah. stuff. And, of course, moving on to another bit of news here. Yep. Uh, I hate to do this, but I'm going to. What? I'm going to play a little sound bite here, and it's going to be pretty repulsive. Go for it. That's uh, Jerry Lee Lewis. He had a, a bit of a stroke, Michael. Suffered a minor stroke, we are learning. And, of course, Jerry Lee Lewis, he... He's making a bit of a recovery from that, Michael, from the stroke. 83 years old. And if you recall, he, he was a pedophile. Did marry, that. yeah, he did marry his 13 year old first cousin. Yeah, pedophile. What a creep. You can paint it however you want it. Pedophile. He is <laughs> creepy, my friend. Yeah. And, and he got away with it. And he got away with it. And it's such a long time ago when he did all this. It's just, how could someone like that uh, get away with doing something that's scandalous well success i guess i don't know i i don't know why the guy never went to jail for it i say the same thing about i say the same thing about michael jackson yeah Yeah, i know you've gotten some heat for that haven't you i got a lot of that a lot of heat for that (laughs) people just defend him yeah a tooth and nail well i mean you know let's be honest the guy was truly talented absolutely no doubt about it Genius. Yeah, no doubt about it. But that does not make poor behavior okay. Now, did he do it or didn't he do it? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, we don't but know. He, but he definitely had a lifestyle that hid a lot of things, and that didn't help his cause. I just know that if he was doing this, any of those sort of behaviors in the more modern time, uh, we would definitely hear Chris Hansen uh, in, in his future. Yeah. You hear this. I'm Chris Hansen with Dateline NBC. Yep. <laughs> That's what you'd hear. Yep, exactly. And then they'd start going through it. Yeah, there's going to be a new documentary uh, HBO will be putting out. They're getting a lot of heat from the Jackson estate. They're being sued for about 10 mil. 
Oh, really? For even putting it on? Exactly. But HBO is basically telling them to kiss their back end, <laughs> which I respect. Yeah. I mean, they didn't ask for permission to make it, so. I'm with them, though. I, I want them to put this out. Yeah. I really I do. I mean, you got you got to take it with a grain of salt like you do anything. Correct. And, yeah. of course, this brings me back to a bit of Florida news because I always mention Florida here at least once. <laughs> there was a pastor who killed himself days after child porn found on his computer. Mm-hmm. And this makes me wonder if you thought about the Pope and if you could forgive him for his actions. Well, I'm not Catholic. I know you're not, but so, can you forgive yeah. someone like that? Forgive someone like the Pope? Mm-hmm. I think I heard you ask a similar question Correct. not too long ago. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, all right. So as a Christian male... I, I could forgive him, but that does not necessarily mean that you forget the action. Right. Okay. You know, it doesn't, doesn't mean that you, doesn't mean you let him hang out with kids or that you let him hang, you know, it doesn't mean that you let him continue to do the things he was doing. You let him share a bed like Michael. Exactly. Okay. Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Exactly. Yes. yes. But, but yeah, you can forgive a guy if a guy is true or, or gal for that matter is truly repentant. That's really the, the kicker. What if somebody, you know, here's, here's a good question for you. And this will infuriate a few people too. So I have for a long time had a problem with the sex offender list. Okay. Hmm. So now I don't, I'm not a proponent of sex offenders. I am not a sex offender. Okay. Right. Here's my issue. When you go to prison, if you have a 20-year term and you go to prison for 20 years, you are supposed to be fully restored to society. So if they put you on a list because of your crime, and a lot of people don't realize that uh, if you urinate in public on a dumpster, you can be added to the sex offender list. Well, that's okay? true. Yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of stupid ways to get it added to that list, but now you are tagged with it forever, and in doing so, you are not fully restored. So why? On earth would anybody be surprised when these guys repeat offend? Now, now they're let out and they're, and they're supposed to live a life that's, that's clean of all that stuff. But at the same time, they have to constantly be reminded. You know, it's like the pink elephant. If I tell you not to think about a pink elephant, what do you think about? You think about a pink elephant. Pink elephant. So, so if you hang this stuff in front of these guys consistently, what do you think they're going to do? You know, does that mean that I've never checked the sex offender list myself? No, of course I have. But I have a problem with the premise. You know, you're, you're setting these guys and, and gals for that matter up for failure and you haven't got a, de- a, a definitive way of saying that this guy is a true sex offender or this guy was added for bogus reasons. Correct. Yeah. It's, it's strange to see that. Yeah. It's strange to see that because you know, they're going to be repeat offenders. Yeah. And of course, California, where I'm at. Yeah. I don't like. A lot of the things that they've done with the prison system, nonviolent convictions that uh-huh. will have a chance at parole. Now, what do you mean nonviolent convictions? Well, that's the problem. A lot of these so-called nonviolent uh, crimes are people that have committed rape. Oh, I gotcha. And this comes from different branches of law enforcement who I've talked to about this issue. Uh-huh. And California, they completed a do. Uh, they, they, lots of, People that vote for different uh, legislations here, looking at Governor Jerry Brown, who has dropped the ball so many times here, too. Uh, uh, just a lot of the people, they 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 
agreed with with different propositions that are just asinine, and they were stupid yeah. to do it. And California yeah. keeps doing these really boneheaded decisions. Well, it's, it, I think California's got control issues, to be perfectly honest. It's like they want to be the most socialist state in the nation. It seems like it. It, it doesn't make sense to me. Nah, well, a lot control of this, seldom does. A lot of um, a lot of these propositions that people sign off for, it's just like, okay, you want to pay for you want to pay more taxes. Yeah, it's yeah, nothing's free. Yeah, it's just really strange to see some yeah. of these propositions that passed. Yeah, somebody's paying for it. Yeah, terrible stuff, really. And of course, Michael, I was curious to ask you this. Yeah. Do you have any plans to perhaps release a book at at any certain time in the future? <laughs> Actually, yeah, I'm working on one. See, I thought so. <laughs> I think I said that in one of my podcasts, didn't I? I don't think I've heard you say that, but I just had the strange feeling that you were going to write a book. Oh, okay. Well, I, I wrote one book, but it had nothing to do with what I do right now. It was how I killed time in Iraq the first time. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, but however, I am writing a book and I am writing, well, I'm not writing. I've, I've got the title. I've got the chapters lined out. I just got to start, you know, actually putting words to page. So you got an idea of what you want to write though. Well, I've got an outline for it. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Very cool. And I'm actually going to start on it, uh, this month. That was the plan. Oh, wow. Yep. Very, very good. Well, Michael, I do want to thank you tremendously for being a part of the program as well. It's been uh, fascinating to talk to you and get your opinion on a lot of these things we talked about. I thought it was fun. It was fun. I appreciate it very much. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, it was a good time, right? Absolutely. We'll definitely have to do this again, my friend. That would be fun. Okay, and before I let you go, definitely plug anything you'd like, uh, get anything off your chest if you'd like. The stage is yours. I appreciate that. So once again, you can find me on The Sedated Man. If you look up The Sedated Man on Google, you're going to find my podcast and my my live feeds and my YouTube channel. And you can reach me at uh, Mike at the TheSedatedMan.com. And you know, if these are things you have questions on as far as a Christian male goes and you're just not sure where to go, contact me. That's what I'm here for. Very good. And, Michael, we will definitely touch base again in the very near future. All right, I thank you. All right, Michael, take care and sleep well and be safe. You too. I appreciate it. All right, God bless. You too. Take care. And there he goes, ladies and gentlemen. That was Michael Baker. Give him a round of applause there, folks. Oh, yeah. Clap it up. Clap it up. And before we take it home, much respect to our international listeners out there in Germany, the UK, Spain, Brazil, and uh, Canada, I see many of you out there still listening. I also would like to thank Deprogrammed Radio and the coming right up. I also see you out there in the chat room. Definitely appreciate you great people out there. Really do love that. Seeing all of you still there. And, of course, those who will catch this on a replay, I really do appreciate all of you being here. It's been such a great time. And, yes... The music there, it, it is that time to say goodbye to all of you out there. I'm Michael Deacon, and with that said, the world is a mysterious place, and life itself is a mystery. Until next time, good night, everybody. <laughs>